not my kettle pod. I'm just holding it for our friends. <laughs> the alpha thing chases Scott, grabs him by the leg, pulls him back and roars right in his face, and that roar is mediocre. Team Wolf wasn't a dog. Team Wolf was a lifestyle. If there's one thing the Alpha does not appreciate, it's anti-climax. Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf Rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kate Colvin, and I'm joined by... Clissa Mullis. And Will Wallace. Every week, we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week, we're talking about season one, episode seven, Night School. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, Alpha and Beta. The Beta section is for first-timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, Alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series, as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the alpha and beta sections. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast, as well as on Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives, like early access to episodes, full moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. Tonight's episode, Night School, was written by Jeff Flaming and directed by Tim Andrew. Reeling from seeing the Alpha seemingly kill Derek, Scott and Styles run into the high school and find themselves trapped inside by the monster. A faked text, apparently from Scott's number, brings Allison to the school along with Lydia and Jackson. Tensions flare among the group as they try to survive the night, with Styles trying to protect his dad and Scott's secret, and Scott trying to fight his own increasingly violent instincts. For our favorite quote from this episode, we have from Styles: "Really beautiful job, everyone. Now, what should we do about the twenty-foot wall of windows?" He says that right after they run into a room and everyone's piling every up against the door, ignoring the giant wall of windows that he's trying to point out, but everyone just is ignoring poor Styles. It's a great, they make a great barricade, like a really good one. It's just, you know, there's pointless. windows. <laughs> <laughs> Completely pointless. It's, it's great. I, I feel like that's a, a great moment because like, I feel like if you're paying attention, they, they don't like hide the windows. It's not like a reveal because the windows are behind right. him in his the shots. whole time. Right. Yeah. It is just like, if you're paying attention, you're like, oh, I see the problem, but they're so scared and not thinking about it. And then you get the great punchline. For honorable mention, we actually have Two more quotes that come from Styles because, you know, he's just on this episode. Well, he is this every episode. <laughs> so on. This one's great. So the first one would be a psychotic werewolf who's into teamwork. That's that's beautiful. And the second one would be whatever he's telling Jackson that he will not call his father. I mean, no. You want to hear it in Spanish? No. He does it much better. Donald Bryan's just well, everything when it comes to comedy. It's very true. He's He's got it dialed in. So this episode opens just... Moments after they see Derek being eviscerated by the Alpha and Scott and Styles run into the high school for cover. I really like this. Teen Wolf, dear listeners, I'm going to say this a lot, dear listeners, because y'all are <laughs> dear listeners, but 
there are many, many episodes of Teen Wolf that start immediately after the end of the previous episode. Teen Wolf was very much a hyper-serialized TV show. It's not the type of show where you're like, oh, I've heard Teen Wolf is pretty good. I think they just aired like their fourth episode. I'm just going to jump in and I'll probably catch up. It's like, no, no, son, you're not going to catch up. (laughs) at all. You need to go back and rewatch. I mean, yeah, we have the previously ons, but the previously ons are only like 30 seconds. I think if that, and they're very um, specific to the episode that you're about to watch. So you're not getting like full context of everything that's come before. But I do love when we have episodes that just start immediately right after the previous episode, because that's like how they just flow into one another. Because it is like, because, you know, we talk, we've talked about in the past, like making the show is like making a movie every week. So basically you're getting 12 movies every season and it's just one giant story and you just kind of get little pieces of it. But uh, I do love that this just starts with him slamming the doors closed and Derek's out there bleeding out somewhere and it's awful. Poor Derek. <laughs> Poor, Poor Derek. Derek. So much blood. He's just trying so hard, but Scott is so bad at this. Also, <laughs> Derek makes him bad at this. Derek is also very, very bad at this. We, <laughs> we, we, we want to be clear on that issue. When we say poor Derek, we're not saying, you know, he does such a good job. We're saying he tries very hard. I think that much can be said for Derek. He He's does try very hard. Gold star all the way. He yes. has many gold stars unlike the board of gold stars. It's just, he's he's not great at this to begin with, but he tries so hard. But he does. he's also dealing with a, a, a pupil who's also not great at this. It's right. just like, you have like two negatives just kind of pushing each other apart at the same time, but one of them is really trying to help the other, but it's just, they're so bad at this. But it, right. but hey, that's, but that's where their all the best drama comes from, right? I mean, it wouldn't be nearly as much fun if Derek was a completely competent teacher and Scott was a completely competent student. And they were right. just like, because then the story would be over. They would know already who the alpha is and it would be over with. That's it probably wouldn't even, wouldn't even You're right. That, no, that wouldn't be one. It would but... be like one episode and it'd be like, <laughs> yeah. oh my God, I was bitten by a werewolf. Oh, the alpha is this person. The end. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> so good. So It's really, the, the whole first season, probably even more of the show, is like, what happens when characters have circumstances thrust upon them that they don't have the emotional skill set necessary to deal with? And that's pretty much, that's, that's what, the, what the story comes from. If they had the emotional skill sets to deal with these things, we wouldn't have a show. <laughs> We'd have College Wolf. that's right or we'd have well-adjusted adult wolf it's a very different program exactly he's just working to get that 401k filled up (laughs) some saving up some you know sick days so next year he and the missus can take off to you know bermuda for three weeks i don't know so yeah but one thing i would like to say about the opening of this episode is we've seen the alpha before but i feel like in this teaser we get a great shot of the alpha coming around the back of the car and you really get a good look at the alpha. And I think the design is great. I'll be honest, this design is not my favorite type of werewolf. If you want to see my favorite type of werewolf design, watch the howling. Fantastic. Love those werewolves. But I'm a big fan of whichever howling has the little like wombat werewolf babies. Uh, That would be part three. That would be part three with the marsupial werewolf. Marsupials. Marsupials. Isn't that what it's called? It's like the... It's the marsupials, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's the howling three colon marsupials. But the design of the alpha really feels like it was inspired by the werewolf from American Werewolf in London, where it's always down on all fours, crouching, and it's very, it's very sleek. 
and fast. And I think it's a lot of fun. What do y'all think? Do y'all like the design? I, I I didn't have a problem with the design. My only criticism would be, I feel like we saw a little too much of it. I agree. Um, I'm a big, big, big proponent of the idea that what you create in your head is always going to be scarier than anything they could put on screen. So I I kind of like more the suggestion of danger, Mm -hmm. you know, just red eyes flashing in the shadows or or a silhouette that's slightly out of focus. I, I like that kind of stuff, but I do realize that that's a personal preference. So I'm sure there were plenty of people who watched Night School and were like, yeah, finally we get to see all of the alpha and see yeah. what it looks like. That's just not me. That's not my preference. I got you. Jaws would have been a very different film, though, if the shark had actually been working. So they're trying to keep the alpha from getting in through the doors. And so they see the bolt cutters that they had used to get into the school outside. And for some reason, Styles is the one who has to run out to grab them. And I definitely feel like Scott should have been the one to do it. He is the one who is a werewolf. He's with... definitely the less breakable of the two of them. Yes. Exactly. But I do think this shows that Styles is brave and he doesn't hesitate to do what needs to be done. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like he is impulsive to the point of recklessness, but... You're right. He is incredibly brave. And he, this, I think just definitely shows he will throw himself into harm's way if it means saving somebody he cares about, which obviously he cares about Scott, their best friend since they were kids. His big mouth gets him into a lot of trouble sometimes, but it does feel like Styles does lead from the front sometimes. Right. So like he's not even worried about himself. He's just going to go do it. Yeah. I feel like Teen Wolf is really great at these super tiny character moments. Agreed. And I love doing a rewatch where we can analyze those. Really satisfies the English major in me. Through a window, they notice that Styles' Jeep has been damaged. His car battery comes flying through the window. And I love this. The Alpha is just such a dick. Dick. And it's hilarious. But the claw marks on the battery are a great end to this teaser. It is. It's fantastic. The Alpha just like, you know, he was clearly listening to them and like wait for the right moment to throw it. This episode is really where you come to understand the Alpha's love for drama. The whole time I felt like the Alpha had written a script for this whole adventure with all the mise-en-scene planned out. It was like, oh, and then I'll chase them into this room and then this is going to happen and it's going to be great and I can't wait to see their faces, you know, because so much of it is done purely for dramatic flair. And I feel like the Alpha does have dramatic flair. The Alpha is sitting there with the car battery being like dropping eaves on their conversation, just like I'm going to pick the perfect moment to chuck this car battery through the window. And then he heard that part of their discussion and went, oh, this is my moment, threw it in there. And it was just perfectly timed for maximum dramatic flair. But at the same time, it is intimidating because previously we had seen the alpha for the most part behave like a wild animal. Yeah. And this is not that. This is planned. Calculated. Calculated, exactly. Premeditated. This is not someone who's out of control, right? This is someone who's totally in control. And this is what they're choosing to do with that control. And that's worrisome. (laughs) Very. I feel like this is like a, this is building upon what happened in the previous episode when Scott is chased by the alpha into his car. And then instead of attacking, the alpha draws a spiral, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's like, this is intelligence, you know? And then with this episode, it's like, no, okay, this is intelligence and it's using it against us. Like we are right, right where it wants us to be, you know, it's using tools and it's using knowledge to, to gain the upper hand at all times. And that's, that's scary. 
you know, because it's it's one of those things where it's like if you're being chased by a rabid dog and you're like in the school, you can just like go into a closet or something. You know, it's not they don't have opposable thumbs, so they're not right. getting through <laughs> the door. But then it's like, well, but then you have something that's like that understands how doorknobs work or keys. It's even worse. Like, what if it locked you inside or put something in front of the door to keep you there? So it's it's really wonderful, but it's also very terrifying. Since the school is climate controlled, Scott and Styles are now trapped inside the school. So they hide in the lockers in the boys' locker room because that's the room that they think of that would have the fewest windows. Also, I feel like it would just smell so much. It'd be really hard for the alpha to come find them right away. He'd be like, <laughs> that's true. By all of these like Axe body spray. Oh. <laughs> it just smells so much like teenage boy. I can't even tell which teenage boy I'm looking for. And teen spirit. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's fantastic. That's fantastic. The awful clearly didn't think this through. <laughs> but when they're hiding in the locker room, they do get stalked by a mysterious shape. And Scott and Styles throw themselves into lockers and try to stay as quiet as possible as this shape, the shadow is moving through the locker room. And you believe it's the alpha and... He's right outside Scott's locker and he throws open the door, but it's just a janitor and he scares them all half to death. Old man Jenkins. Old man Jenkins. No, I think I think I named him Slappy. You did His name is Slappy. Slappy the janitor. And did y'all know? He's really committed to this joke. I am. Is, I'm yeah. still committed to this joke. This is Slappy the janitor. And interesting fact, he is three days from retirement. Oh, tragic. And then the alpha attacks and kills him horribly. And Kate... Was it you who really like what happens here? Yeah. Well, I just love a good victim gets dragged away by unseen assailant shot. And Teen Wolf has many of those. I love how how immediately Styles throws himself into a locker. I feel like he has spent time there. He knows how this goes. That is a semi-natural habitat for him. It's his safe space. Allison was supposed to get picked up by Scott but he's just left her standing out front of her house until she receives a cryptic text message, seemingly from Scott. And she decides to go to the school along with Jackson and Lydia when Lydia worries about Allison being stood up. Scott and Styles think they've found a way out, but the Alpha has moved a dumpster in front of the doors, leaving them stuck inside the school. This is another great bit where the wild animal is proving that it knows how to use tools and it's very scary. But I will say, when we were rewatching this episode, Scott, buddy, you got super strength, man. <laughs> those dumpsters were moving. Like, it was difficult, but they were moving. You could have really pushed those doors open. But then I was imagining, like, Styles saying, like, in an alternate version of, of that scene, Styles was like, use your super strength. And Scott, like, eyes glow and he pushes and he can't do it. And they, they peer out through the crack and they see there's, like, a Ford Taurus or something pushed up against the dumpsters too. <laughs> so it's just like even worse or something like that. But Project placement. Teen Wolf was great at that. Absolutely. It was always seamless. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Allison and the others get to the school and they notice that one of the doors has been propped open and they think that Scott and Styles might have broken in. It's very conveniently propped open with the bolt cutters that they used to get into the school. Like, how obvious could one be? As I said, the Alpha loves some good mise-en-scene. He's trying to put that information in frame. Allison decides to go inside to look for Scott and is surprised when Jackson actually looks concerned for her. But I do really like that Jackson's concerned in this scene. It's great. 
It, it's an interesting dynamic that they have in this episode because Jackson is very much pulling away from Lydia. He's making a lot of snide comments towards her, and yet he is showing a little bit of softness toward Allison, and Lydia definitely notices. Do you guys think that he was actually into Allison, though? Like, they have an yeah interesting dynamic for, for the couple episodes around here, but... I don't actually get a sense that he has romantic feelings for her. I don't believe he does. I, I feel like these are just little moments of his actual humanity coming out when those little bits are able to get past everything that's supposed to be self-serving for him. Because yeah. he's definitely one of those people that if he does something, it's because it benefits him in some way. And right. I feel like this is just that his actual humanity coming out a little bit. He's not a bad person. It's just his fatal flaw is he has a belief that he is not good enough based on being an adopted child and that he has to always prove himself and that everything he does is adding to that having to prove himself. Like he's so good at everything. He's in perfect shape because then, oh my God, if I'm such a great lacrosse player, people will like me and then I'll feel really a part of my family. Like they'll really want me, you know, stuff like that. And so everything he does is self-serving for this horrible, horrible reason, you know, that doesn't even need to exist at all. But then you have these great little moments where his actual humanity comes out, his actual true self just kind of peeks through the clouds just a little bit. But then sadly, it goes away again, just as fast. And I feel like that's because of Lydia, but I don't think it's, I don't mean it to be like, well, it's Lydia's fault. I feel like Lydia and Jackson together are just a toxic couple towards each other and because of each other like Lydia needs Jackson Jackson needs Lydia they believe there are roles that need to be fulfilled and that they are the opposite to each other that will help them fulfill that role but they're just awful for each other they're just not good for each other at all so right because I do think as much as I think Jackson is awful to Lydia in this episode and she does intentionally or not feed into his greatest neurosis Right. I mean, we we have her saying things like, oh, do you want to be a little high school amateur or do you want to go pro? It is feeding into this sense of inadequacy Mm -hmm. that he has. She's not a hypocrite. She applies those same exacting standards to herself that she applies to him and to others. But that doesn't make it healthy for anyone involved. No. Who closes the door behind Allison? It just like slowly (laughs) creeps shut after she's entered. I'm like, Okay, did the alpha do that? Because Jackson's standing right there. It's very I know dramatic. Exactly how it it's dramatic and it looks great. But if you do think about it, you're like, did yeah, did the alpha just like creep up on his little alpha tiptoes right behind the door, <laughs> just like nudging it shut with one claw and hoping that nobody looked over at that particular moment? Like Allison doesn't even look back. He does it purely for his own benefit. I know how now he that does. I believe. He loves drama. <laughs> the alpha was hiding behind Styles' cheek, just crouched down. He's like looking through the window, like make sure everybody's looking the right way. And he had tied dental filament all the way <laughs> to <laughs> all the way to uh, the bolt cutters. And he was just waiting for this little moment. He, he watches it go in and he just pulls it and it falls down and it closes perfectly. He was like, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> they high That's what I like, like Will does. Did yes, he did exactly. he buy the dental filament from the Acme Corporation? <laughs> Probably, yes. Yes, exactly. So he and Wiley Coyote both have memberships too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's fantastic. So that's what I like to imagine. Because you're absolutely right. How did that happen? Why didn't she look back? I mean, it, it's great because it's a great 
I think that's the first act out, you know, yeah. and it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's haunted house stuff, you know, doors open and closing haunted houses all the time. Why? I don't know, but it's always fun. Like, cause it's just this creepy trope that kind of has to happen, but it's just fun. It's, it's great. I like your comparison to Wiley Coyote. Cause I feel like, like the Wiley Co- Coyote, he just keeps, the alpha keeps going after Scott and he just never catches him. It's just no. a classic right. Roadrunner situation. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I feel like at the end of this episode, he should just be like, maybe I should find someone else. Yeah. The, the alpha <laughs> is, it, it's definitely a very like Sisyphus type thing. Like, bro, after the 17th time the boulder rolls back down the hill, you should reevaluate your objectives here. Yeah. So Styles uses a diversion to lure the Alpha into a room and slam the door. He and Scott use a desk to keep the door closed, but the Alpha escapes by breaking through the ceiling tiles. I just think the Alpha is really caught up in the sunk cost fallacy of turning Scott and trying to recruit him. I mean, he could have turned half of Beacon Hills at this point instead of chasing after this one dumb 16-year-old. He has to know by now that it's probably not going to happen, or if it is, it's going to be like pulling fangs and it's going to take forever. Just find someone who's not a 16-year-old boy. <laughs> I would have personally loved to see him turn coach. What do you think that would have been oh like? Oh my <laughs> God. Coach would be so disappointed when he realized that like drugs don't work on werewolves. <laughs> He just bought right? all that cocaine. Like, yeah, there, I can't use it. There goes that coke habit. He's just going to sell it all to teenagers. Oh, he totally probably. would. He totally would. <laughs> but like only to lacrosse players so that they're better at lacrosse. Yeah. So Jackson and Lydia end up going inside to try to find Allison when she doesn't come back right away. She made the mistake of saying, I'll be right back. While Lydia runs to the bathroom, Jackson catches a glimpse of the alpha. And it, it's great. It's a great so shot. Good. It's shadowy and in the distance so it keeps that mystique that's that's the kind of shot that I really like and wanted the episode to be pretty much exclusively that instead of the the bigger shots of the werewolf but the episode has both night school is my favorite episode of season one and this moment between Colton and I guess you can say the alpha is my favorite moment in this episode it's so good it's just creepy and super weird and startling because colton is a really good actor and there's so much going on right here on his face as he sees a a figure he's like scott because the outline is a human being it's you know nothing weird here but then that outline changes as the human gets on all fours and looks away and then feels like you see the blood drain from his face and then lydia comes right back out it's fantastic it's really really well done you know, more of that humanity coming out. Because like, again, he's not a bad person. He's just super self-serving. And that just leads him to do awful, awful things. But then you have moments like this and it just reinforces that, hey, remember, they are 16. This character is a kid and he is in way over his head and he just doesn't know. it. And it makes it really scary, you know, when you do remember that these are kids running around a school at night with a monster. I feel like they really knocked it out of the park with the casting of the core cast. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like they all just nailed it. They just nailed it. And it's little moments like this that just prove how good they all are. Russell Mulcahy and Jeff Davis should just be like constantly like patting themselves on the back for like recognizing the talent that they saw there with Bobblehead. Hearing telltale noises from the ceiling, Scott, Stiles, Allison, Lydia, and Jackson run into the chemistry classroom. Despite Stiles' protest, the others barricade themselves in the room. 
failing to notice the massive windows along one wall. I'm just so impressed by Holland's ability to run in the heels she wears in this episode. Yeah, that was something we talked to Barbara about. Right. Was that Holland is deeply skilled at the art of doing all sorts of, you know, physical activity, wearing impressive skyscrapers of footwear. Take that lost world. We will beat you to it by five years. I was actually thinking about that when we were talking to Barbara, but it's completely different because, you know, as Barbara pointed out, Lydia didn't dress to go monster hunting. She wasn't out there like planning to go running through the woods in her shoes or she didn't go to the school thinking, I'm going to be running through these halls in these heels. Yeah. Do you think all the running on Tina will fully prepare Dylan O'Brien for the maze runner? (laughs) He probably still had to do some more running if I had to guess. A little bit more. Although I think Beacon Hills is probably a labyrinthine town because there's a lot happening there as we've discussed before. Cornered and confused, Allison tries to get Scott to explain what's going on, prompting Scott to blurt out that Derek is the one who killed his sister, the bus driver, and the video store employee, all from previous episodes, and that now he's in the school with them trying to kill them all. And this kind of comes out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> poor Derek. <laughs> poor poor I know, Derek. Right? I just... I, I feel like, you know, Scott just really commits to this plan. He just doubles down. They're like, Derek, really? He's like, yes. Oh my God. Totally Derek. I, mean, I just don't understand why. It's They're a like, terrible what? plan. Again, they, and they even are like, are you sure it's Derek? So they give him a moment where he could yeah. be like, well, it looked like Maybe. Derek, you know? Yeah. And it's it like, I'm so 100% certain that that was Derek. He murdered his sister and a video store clerk and a janitor. And he's trying to kill us. And we're all going to die. They're like, like, why? Why? And I mean, for, from Allison, it's like, didn't he drive me home from a party <laughs> that one time? Like, why would he do that and then chase me to a school to kill me. I don't understand what you're talking about. It's just such a terrible plan. And after what has happened at the school so far, I don't know how they believe it's just a human killer that's after them. I mean, maybe a Jason Voorhees, but not just like a regular dude. (laughs) Beacon, 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 beacon. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's definitely because like the alpha falls through the ceiling and chases him. Someone right. had to have looked back and seen clearly not human sh- shapes, you know, and, and, but you're right. He just double and triples down on this story yeah. and it really did not have to be so complicated. He could have just been like, Styles and I were here at the school. Someone attacked us. Now they're trying to kill all of us. Right. That's all you need. Because that's the thing. Like I was, I was thinking about it. Like I understand that he doesn't want to tell them the truth, of course. And I understand that he wants to tell them something because they're looking to him for some kind of explanation of what's going on and why he told them all to run into this room. But I don't really see the benefit of being like, it was Derek. Because he doesn't gain anything more from that than he would have by saying, oh, Styles and I came here to play a prank and then I was going to go hang out with you, but then, I don't know, some crazy person tried to attack us and killed the janitor and we didn't get a good look at them because we were running away. Right. It, that, yeah. that would have had, if anything, it, it would have worked better because they wouldn't have had so many follow-up questions like, why would he do that? How can you be so certain that it's Derek and that he has a motive to kill all of us? Yeah. Right? It, it would have made a lot more sense to be like, I don't know, some... Some maniac yeah. did it with a with a machete. Or, yeah, or, or, <laughs> yes. you know, yeah, whatever. And like, had a weapon, killed the janitor, 
And I don't know what they want, but they attacked me and Styles for no reason. So I kind of feel like we have to assume that they're armed and dangerous, right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> it works yeah. just as well. Fewer follow-up questions. And it's just, you know, and then Styles kind of pulls him aside and is like, what the hell was that? Why did you just throw Derek under the bus? And he's like, I don't know. It's like, if Derek's dead, then it's fine. Which Scott was the one who was insisting that Derek might right? not be dead. And I feel like I understand Styles's point that like, oh, blood was spurting out of his mouth. But Scott can hear heartbeats and he didn't say, you know, well, I heard his heart stop beating. But then Scott's the one being like, well, you said he was probably dead and that sounded right-ish. And so <laughs> I decided why not just put all this on Derek? And it's like, well, because it doesn't really benefit you to do that. It makes it harder to explain. If he's not dead, he's going to have to go on the lamb. And yeah. if he is dead, it Kind of sucks that, I mean, I know you didn't like the guy, but he wasn't a cold-blooded murderer. And now that's what he's going to be remembered for. Best case scenario here, right? Yeah. It's a rubbish plan. <laughs> it's but, a rubbish plan. But... Now, Styles, afraid for his father's safety, poses calling the police, but Lydia calls anyway. Unfortunately for them, someone called in an anonymous tip that there would be prank calls that night about a break-in at the high school. So the operator just hangs up on her. That's not how that should work. Right. I don't think the sheriff would be on board with this plan of like, oh yeah, we'll just ignore all those calls. Exactly. I definitely feel like based on pop culture, you know, if I was a police operator and someone called and said, hey, apparently like some kids are going to break into local high school tonight and they're going to vandalize the place and you're probably going to get some calls about it. Don't worry about it. I'd be like, oh yeah, thanks, sir. I'll totally not worry about it. Hello, police chief. (laughs) I think we need to worry about something. Get Batman on the phone right now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, unless you're so understaffed that you can't send anyone, why not just send a car? And if it is kids just jerking your chain, be like, okay, we're going to call your parents or, you know, we're going to threaten that we're going to charge you with tomfoolery. Tomfoolery. (laughs) Tomfoolery Um, in the second degree. (laughs) uh, Being hoodlums. Um, Yeah, like, unless they honestly couldn't spare one person, it feels like that makes a lot more sense because one, you could dissuade kids from doing that again. And two, in case that person has nefarious plans, you at least did some due diligence, right? Right. Absolutely. Because I mean, honestly, I feel like this should just be a due diligence thing. Yeah. It's like, we should always check just because the one time you don't is the one time that's on national news that all the teenagers get murdered at Peking High School. That's what that is. So, but I was honestly thinking, it's like, I wish a patrol car had come by. I love the shows Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and very different shows to this. But one thing they do is they definitely always show characters working through a plan that they try every possible way to achieve something or to get out of a problem instead Mm -hmm. of just kind of jumping over stuff with, oh, they call the cops and they said they've got reports of prank calls. So they're not sending anybody. It's like, no, no. Well, I'm breaking better vertical assaults. Like they call the cops and the cop come. But then that creates a new problem or the the villain or whatever goes and talks to the cops. Right. Like in Die Hard. To, like, in, yeah, like in Die Hard. Like in Die Hard. Yes, where they're like, like in Die Hard. Yeah. Where, you know? Right. Where they're like, sir, this is a prank call. And he's like, then come the f- down here and arrest me. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah exactly. What if a patrol car had come and then someone walks out and they're like, they're like on the third floor or the second floor and they can't really see who it is, but someone walks out in like a security uniform and they're talking to the cop and they're like, wait, who is, they're like, we don't have 
nighttime security. And they and you see this person just talking to the cop and pointing and all this stuff. And then the cop's just like, yep, yep, gets back in and drives away. And then the person this just turns around and their eyes glow red, you know, for just a second. You know, that would have been awesome, I think. But I feel like you should always create more problems. That would have like, left a trail though. Because if they were have, that, to you would person. have to have a different episode, like it would have ended the same way. But I'm very much a proponent of no free passes mm-hmm. when it comes to story and drama that I feel like characters should always do whatever they can to solve a problem and that we should see it. So Allison tries to get Scott to explain why Derek would want to hurt them, whether he sent her the phony text from Scott and whether he called in the anonymous tip. Scott loses his temper with her and immediately regrets it. And speaking only to Styles, Scott suggests that the Alpha might have sent the text to Allison because he wants revenge against her and her family of werewolf hunters. But it's Scott's urging that gets Styles to finally go ahead and call his dad, but all he gets is the voicemail. Instead of the events of the tell, I feel like what happened in this episode should have led to Styles being angry with Scott. I mean, Scott's the one to push Styles into calling, even though he knows Styles is worried about the Alpha potentially just slaughtering the police if they show up, including his father. I stand by that it makes no sense that Styles was angry at Scott because of what happened with the mountain lion. I mean, there was nothing that Scott could have done and Also, I feel like his dad was never in any more danger than anyone else there. Right. But in this episode, you know, it's not completely rational because there's not a lot that Scott could do in this moment. But also, I do understand where Styles is coming from. I mean, he doesn't want to put his father at risk. Right. So I would completely understand if because of this, he would be angry with Scott. I agree. I I think it makes a lot more sense because Jackson's being an asshole, but that's Jackson's brand. I don't think that, (laughs) you know, that doesn't shock Styles. I mean, it like mildly irritates him, but I think it feels like more of a betrayal for Scott to urge Styles to call his dad because Scott is the only other person there who really knows what's going on. So he's fully aware that Styles has this understandable fear that if they call his dad, his dad could get hurt or killed. I don't have a problem with characters sometimes behaving in a way that isn't rational because we all sometimes behave in a way that isn't rational. The problem is that with the whole thing in uh, Heart Monitor where Styles was mad at Scott because of what happened in the tell, I just didn't even really buy it. Right. I, I understand that people behave irrationally, but I didn't even really understand what Styles' irrational <laughs> perspective was there. Because what did he want Scott to do? I just, that right. I wasn't clear on that. But here, I agree with you. I think that would have made a lot of sense that like, sure, rationally, you would understand that they had very few options here. And, yeah. and at least, you know, the sheriff is an authority figure where the alpha being a, a person who can think probably doesn't want to be any more on the local authorities radar than they already are. And also his point that at least the sheriff is armed. And while Wolfsbane laced bullets are more effective on werewolves, a regular bullet ain't nothing. <laughs> I mean, it'll yeah, slow right. him down. And, yeah. and that's more than the kids might be capable of. So even though I think that Styles would know all those things rationally, it's totally understandable that he would feel betrayed by Scott being like, well, despite all your concerns about your dad getting hurt, call him anyway. Right. Scott then comes up with a plan. He will go retrieve the keys from the janitor's body, and then they'll all take a stairwell up to the roof and use the fire escape to make their getaway. But since he's unarmed and Allison doesn't know about his superpowers, she fears that Derek 
will kill him right away if he tries to leave the chemistry room. Lydia decides to take advantage of their location and make a self-igniting Molotov cocktail to throw at the threat. Jackson assists her, but seems distracted. Again, werewolf straight Scott. I feel like he should have just picked up like some sort of heavy object and pretended to hit that with the door while using his werewolf strength to like knock through the deadbolt or something. I don't know. But he definitely, I feel like could have, even if the dumpster was a bit tricky, there's no reason I feel like he shouldn't have been able to get through this door himself. No, they could have easily, and he could have hidden it very well. Yeah. Just just like like, everyone push a desk together and they don't realize he's using his extra strength to break through the door. It's (laughs) a chemistry room. I'm sure there's probably like a fire extinguisher around there. Just take that and start hitting on it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Stand back everyone. This could be dangerous. I do think that again, this is one of those things that a lot of supernatural shows face which is that narratively different degrees of strength and ability are required in different circumstances. And so you do kind of end up with like, okay, well, a season ago, a demon was able to smash right through an entire building, but suddenly in this scene, they can't do that. And it's something that happens. I mean, it's definitely something that you would notice watching, for instance, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's like, okay, well, sometimes the vampires are like gods. And sometimes they're like, bodybuilders (laughs) bodybuilders <laughs> yeah you know there, there's a lot of fluctuation in just how superhuman they are and I think that that's something that can be really hard to keep consistent because the story is going to require different things and y- yeah. you would really have to do a lot of storytelling finesse to keep it consistent and yet still have it work in every situation you want to write it in Allison tells Scott that just as he knows her tell that reveals when she's lying She can tell when Scott is lying too, and she can tell that he's been lying all night. To her dismay, Scott still insists on going out to get the key, though he is armed with Lydia's Molotov cocktail. At this point, I would like to give a little shout out to Scott's little combed hair and his little side part. Oh, it's a puppy, puppy <laughs> I didn't comment on, but I love that, you know, Lydia's just like, oh, I read about a Molotov cocktail somewhere. I'm like, Okay, where did you read about it that gave in detail a recipe for this, Lydia? It's the anarchist cookbook. She's been reading the anarchist cookbook. <laughs> no girl trying to pass herself off as dumb, but like, it's no wonder that Styles has picked up on how intelligent she really is because right. everyone else has to be either very self-involved or a complete idiot not to realize how smart they're is. very self-involved though. Okay, real talk. If I was an alpha, immediately I'd go for Styles, Lydia, maybe Allison but I would not go for Scott or Jackson. Yeah. And then all my baby wolves would be in therapy. (laughs) So back in the chemistry room, Lydia worries that Jackson might have handed her the wrong chemical compound, which would result in the Molotov cocktail not lighting properly. You had one job, Jackson, one job. (laughs) And you were a callous individual and and intentionally gave her the wrong compound. I don't understand why Lydia relied on him to hand her anything. Like it was within her reach. I feel like she should have just read the label herself. I mean, it was like right there. I I feel like maybe there should have been some kind of time crunch to Mm -hmm. where it was like, hand me this, hand me this, hand me this. There was just no time to slow down and take things carefully. Yeah. But watching it when it felt a little more, I don't want to say leisurely, obviously there was a threat, but it wasn't like an in the next 10 seconds threat. Yeah. So it was really just like, don't tell Jackson to hand you the sulfuric acid. Look at the bottle and see if it says sulfuric acid. Don't trust anybody else. Yeah. Trust no bitch. (laughs) 
that, that's an interesting question. Y- you think that Jackson intentionally gave her the wrong thing? Yeah, I mean, he did. In the previous scene, he reaches for the right bottle, stops himself, and then chooses a different bottle. I didn't. 100%. His hand reaches for a bottle, he stops, and then Why would he do that? Yeah, why would he do that? Because he doesn't like Scott. Yeah, but he doesn't want Scott to be killed. I don't know, but that is 100% what happens. This is when we learned that Jackson is dyslexic and didn't want to admit it to anyone else. Aw. Or he's an asshole who doesn't like Scott. <laughs> I do that just makes no sense. Yeah, I don't know. Sense. I don't know if I buy that. Oh man, I, w- I wish we would have asked Jeff about this because I didn't. Yeah. I did not take it that way. I I took. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. I t- I took it that Jackson was super distracted because of the festering wound mm-hmm. on the back of right. his neck, and that because of that he was just kind of like, "What am I grabbing for? I'm grabbing for this," and handing it to her, even though I did not take it as he made a calculated decision. Because I feel like it doesn't benefit him. I don't know, Scott's. Uh, we've already had the scene where he's like, "Hey, you know what it's like to be the best," and then someone better than you comes along. No, but I'm saying like for his own personal safety. Because <laughs> if Scott leaves the room and then is killed and then the killer shows up and they still have no keys to get to the roof, mm-hmm. like then he's just dead too. You can't okay. be a, a lacrosse pro when you're dead. Yeah, that's true. So I did watch the scene and yeah, we do get that he reaches for the first bottle, but we don't get a moment that makes it seem like we don't get Jackson's, like a shot of Jackson's face. We don't get anything that's like that really shows that he's calculating this that this is something he's thinking about we only see like what his hands do like I wonder if he just doesn't seem to know what actually like it's very dark in there and the labels are kind of like facing away from him so I don't know does he just go like is it this one no I think it's this one and he doesn't check himself because he is a guy who's so confident that he knows everything well he's just a guy with a lot of confidence so I just don't know if he even wants to like doubt himself or admit it's that possible. he needs to ask for clarification or, right. you know, anything like that. Well, it's different in the script. It says he turns each bottle looking for the right one then carefully hands it to Lydia. So what they shot is different than what was actually scripted. I still well, that, read it as him making a conscious choice. That to me sounds a lot more intentional than how right. it read to me on screen. Mm-hmm. I kind of wonder, given what happens with the wound on the back of his neck, whether Mm -hmm. he is in some way being influenced by the alpha, the way Scott is that, that isn't to take responsibility from Jackson. It's more so because I just have a hard time understanding why he would think that would benefit him. Why would he be influenced by the alpha? The alpha didn't slime. No, I know, but but remember when the alpha roars and he has that intense pain in his neck. Right. Yeah. So there's clearly had like some visions of the, fire even though he wasn't at the fire well Derek wasn't at the fire mm-hmm. and so it's I possible. I'm not totally sure how that works I feel like we don't really get much more of that but we do see that like when when the alpha roars and forces Scott to turn Jackson feels it too even yeah. though the alpha wasn't the one who clawed him I'm not sure why that works but it is yeah. something that we see happen no I, I remember that now yes I don't know I feel like the scene itself I mean I'm just reading it the way I'm reading it, but I don't, I do feel like the scene is nebulous enough where we don't get like a reaction. We don't get a close up of him or anything. Like we don't get other, we don't get a decision shot. Yeah. We, there's not a decision shot. It's just his hand reaching for one and going for the other. And which, you know, is different than what's in the script. And I feel like once I read that in the script, I feel like that was just a time thing that they're, cause they're like, 
because it says he checks the label, you know, and and mm-hmm. it's like they're like, no, no, no. He reaches for one, chooses another one, because it's like we gotta we gotta move. Because like what you're describing, the script is probably multiple shots instead of one shot. Like what's right. the cleanest action? Armed with Lydia's concoction, Scott uses his heightened sense of smell to track the janitor's body to the bleachers in the gym. The bleachers start retracting into the wall and Scott narrowly avoids getting crushed while retrieving the janitor's keys. Like I said earlier, I just really feel like this is an example of the sequence of events that the Alpha totally had planned. The Alpha's like imagining the setup and what it's going to be like. And he's like, yeah, then I fall from the ceiling and oh, then the janitor's hanging from the bleachers and then they start collapsing. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be so dramatic. Yes. The Alpha knows how to put on a show. Oh, yeah. I love this. I think it's really fun and really scary. So Scott narrowly avoids being crushed by the retracting bleachers. And when he gets back out into the gym, there's the Alpha. Like they are just having this face off. And so Scott takes the Molotov cocktail and throws it heroically at the Alpha only for it to break on his shoulder and nothing to happen at all. The Alpha actually shakes his head yes. in this moment in, in, in like theatrical disappointment. If there's one thing the Alpha does not appreciate, it's anticlimax. He does kind of shake. He's like, oh, what? No, this isn't. This isn't exciting at all. Right. Well, you know, so the Alpha shakes his head, but he's still committed to this. He still yeah, just walk away. Reason, I don't. Yeah. Like, that could have been the, that could have been the straw that broke the alpha's back, where he was just <laughs> like, he was just like, ah, you can't even do that. I guess uh, I don't know. I just don't have the heart for this anymore. He just kind of slowly <laughs> walks away, <laughs> you know. And you get that, you get that sad Charlie Brown. Music. Do, 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 do. <laughs> yes, exactly. Do, do, sad Charlie Brown music as the alpha walks away. Poor Alpha, you just chose the worst possible beta. But he's committed. He is so committed that he roars in Scott's face and that roar makes Scott shift into a werewolf. And this is, I think, one of the coolest bits of new mythos that Team Wolf brings to the werewolf mythology that an alpha can roar and and force a shift onto a person that they've bitten. I think that's just great. That's just so yeah, I like interesting. That. I don't I don't remember ever seeing something like that in a werewolf story. They can affect each other in a way. And there uh, there is a, a lot of connectedness to the werewolves. It feels like it's more personal that it's not just, oh, I bit a person and now they're a monster like I am. It's like now I bit a person, and I'm kind of responsible for this asshole. You know, type of thing. <laughs> you know, where it's like it's like you need to it's kind of like you need to be like selective in like who you bite because you're kind of like they're they're your kid now type of thing. And I, I like that. I think that's fun. But I, I really just do like the alpha being able to force the shift. It seems really interesting and just awful and scary, you know, because of definitely what comes next. I feel like he just didn't want to be bested by Scott. And that's the only reason why he's still just in this to win it. Yeah, I could see that. Also, when he forces Scott to shift, Jackson has a reaction too. He experiences this intense pain in the wound in the back of his neck, which is interesting because the alpha is not the one who gave him that wound. He kind of like eyed it right at the video store, but that that was Derek. And then the other interesting thing here is that when he forces Scott to shift, Scott's eyes turn red before they turn yellow. Let's discuss that in spoilers. Ooh. Yeah, it really did surprise me that Jackson had a reaction. Yeah, but I I think that maybe goes back to the interconnectedness, that there's something about that all werewolves kind of have each other on their radar a little bit. That makes sense. It's a very interesting idea. 
Looking murderous, Scott heads back to the chemistry classroom. Before he can go in, he hears Allison's voice, which brings him back from the edge. He breaks the key off in the lock to protect them from himself. Does anyone ever just feel so bad that Styles is just cast aside and he means nothing to Scott after all these years? It's always just Allison, Allison, Allison. They've been friends for years and Styles' voice does nothing for him. If anything, it seemed like in previous episodes when he was losing control, he he went after Styles. Yeah. Unfortunately for Scott, the others can hear him on the other side of the door breaking off the key and walking away from them, which out of context doesn't look great. It doesn't. Actually, in context doesn't look great because uh, because it's like, why are you so close to losing control on us? We're not even the threat. But luckily for everyone, police vehicles pull into the parking lot outside from which Derek's car seems to have vanished. And when the police get there, Styles backs up Scott's story that they saw Derek kill the janitor, but the sheriff and his deputies can't find anyone else inside the school, not even the janitor's body. Styles is just such a good friend, always willing to go along with whatever bullshit Scott comes up with. He is a ride or die. He is a ride or die. <laughs> he co-signs on whatever Scott commits to. I feel like this is kind of a quid pro quo thing that Scott has been drug out of his house at night many times over the years to go on some adventure and Styles is just like, all right, I feel like I should kind of go along with this. I do think probably on some level Styles feels some responsibility because the only reason Scott was there to get bitten was because he yeah. wanted to go find half a dead body. Right. And I think too, probably until they saw Laura's body. I don't necessarily think that the reality of it sank in. It was like, ooh, a dead body. Nothing exciting ever happens around here. But it's like, that was a person. Yeah. It's very stand by me. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Which is kind of the abuser's playbook. But, you know, you want to control someone. You cut them off from sort of their emotional safety net. And very clearly, the alpha wants to do that with Scott. And one aspect of Scott's emotional safety net is that the main law enforcement officer in town is his best friend's dad, someone that he's known for years. But he forced Scott into a situation where he knows that the sheriff doesn't believe him. Yeah. Because the evidence is gone. So I don't know if the logistics of it quite work out, but maybe that is the motive that he's like, what are the subtle things I can do to cut him off from everyone who's not me, really. Mm -hmm. I feel like he should have done more to try to separate him from Styles because Styles was really everything, I feel like, to Scott in the first season. Well, outside of Allison, but like he was the one who knew when Allison didn't. So I feel like it would have made the most sense to me to separate Scott and Styles. Yeah. Maybe he hoped that they would have a fight after the, this sequence of events, like you had said, but maybe I guess Styles was just played out at this point. I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm <What>? honestly, <laughs> I can't even continue to be frustrated at you. It's just, I'm just at a baseline frustration, maybe. <laughs> at this <point>. <laughs> <laughs> so afterward, Styles is busy being relieved that they survived, but Scott is concerned about something new. He thinks that the Alpha wants him to get rid of his old pack so that he's free and unencumbered to join the Alphas pack. Getting rid of his old pack means killing the people in his life, namely Allison, Lydia, Jackson, and Styles. 
And the worst part is, when the alpha made him shift, part of him actually wanted to. Okay, but since when are Lydia and Jackson part of Scott's pack? I mean, Jackson still doesn't seem to like him. Lydia barely tolerates him. Where's this, oh, they're part of my pack, just because they double date sometimes with him and Allison? Mm, I don't think so. He should have mentioned his mom. <laughs> he should have mentioned his mom. That's what yeah. I don't get. Why he I, I think it's him. more telling about Scott than about the alpha that 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 is his conclusion. Instead of being like, he wanted me to kill you to Styles, He says, he wanted me to kill my old pack. Allison, Lydia, Jackson, you. Poor Styles, listed last. Sure, probably for dramatic effect, but still. I've been like, uh, I've known you the longest. I should be number one. Okay, buddy, I, I should be killed first. <laughs> I should be murdered first. All right. If we are going in your your innermost circle and then concentric circles out from there, I am in the innermost circle. Allison is in your met this month circle. <laughs> yes, yes. I would expect Kate, you to list me before Will. Sorry. No, I've I, I would totally, that makes complete sense. Y'all have known each other longer than we've been friends. So that makes complete sense. <laughs> he, he says that and then he's like, Softly crying and doing <laughs> I can't believe she said that. But yeah, it would be like, he, want, he wants to make me kill my old pack. And then listing first, like, a co-worker that I barely tolerate or something. It's yeah. like, what? Why are they? Do you remember my so childhood kind of... bully? Like... <laughs> <laughs> right? But Jackson's closer to that than he is to pack, honestly. Yeah, no, I agree. But also... Deaton's alive. He's out there being treated by what? the paramedics. He looks pretty beat up, probably mostly from the beating he took at Derek's hands in the previous episode. But he's still pretty cagey when asked how he escaped the car. It seems like he can only be mysterious. He's super suspicious. Yeah. He's yeah. like, what's the most enigmatic answer I can give to <laughs> a simple question? That's right. Oh my God, man. How did you get away? Well, did I? <laughs> what? How does anyone get away, really? <laughs> what does it mean to get away? You know, Scott then tries to smooth things over with Allison because, of course, that's a very high priority for him. But she says that she feels like she can't trust him anymore. He says he'll get a new phone soon and can call her so they can talk things out. But she tells him not to contact her. It's sad. Dude, it's... Dude, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's like, it's, it's... I've almost died all night and this is still the worst part of my night. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. but that's, I feel like that's what makes it so sad. It's great because it feels very genuine and I don't, I don't want to use this like in a pejorative way, but very high school. I was going to say, yeah. The experience you've just been through, for any other person, this is a life-changing thing. But then at the end, like, this is the worst part for you, right. is that your girlfriend broke up with you. And we as the audience totally know that oh, this yeah. is the worst part for him. It's heartbreaking to watch because, you know, we all remember what it was like to be stupid high schoolers. Uh, but see, I was never in love with anyone, so uh, I, I do have to work a little bit to understand. We were first season styles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What? I said we were first season styles, as in not getting any. Correct. Oh, gotcha. Okay. That's right. Well, I remember what it was like to be a dumb high schooler in love. Not getting any. Not for the podcast, but <clears throat> so, yeah. But, you know, so Scott's feeling awful, heartbroken, and very small. And we get this great last final shot where the camera's just kind of pulling away from him and it makes him small in the frame. And it's, he looks very small. He looks very small. Yes. And it's great. It's fantastic. 
and what is this episode 107 oh, i was about to say no this isn't the end of our second act but still is crushing for scott and i'm very curious to see how he's going to take it going into the next episode probably not well probably not well <laughs> but that's great because that's how we get drama and drama is fantastic for stories so. the next episode's just him uh listening to sarah mclaughlin and eating ice cream in bed i will remember <laughs> you He's just watching those ASPCA dog commercials. High school boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> like, those are, those are heartbreaking. Okay, I don't, <laughs> I don't have to. I don't have to stretch my way of thinking to be heartbroken when I see a skinny doggo with their ribs sticking out, set to Sarah McLaughlin, man. No. I don't, I don't got to work for that. All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for night school, and now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all of the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the Alpha. It wants me in its pack. But I, I think first I have to get rid of my old pack. All right, Wolfies, let's jump over to our interview with Tim Andrew, the director of Night School, and a total of 35 episodes of Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. Jumping back to my awesome segue, you're awesome too, Tim, and we have a whole bunch of questions that we want to ask you about. We're super good at segues. We, we pretty much leave every transition to him because of that. So. Yes, I am pretty mediocre at it, so awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's dive in, shall we? Absolutely. Excellent. Awesome. Well, first question, Tim. How did Teen Wolf come into your life? How did you find yourself in Atlanta working on this show? One of my very best friends is Joe Janier, uh, who's the producer of the show. And I'd known him a very long time. We worked together for Roger Corman many years ago, making really awful films. That's but awesome. But it was a lot of fun. And we had a lot of fun. We liked, liked working together. And, and uh, that group was like Teen Wolf in a way, because... Uh, it was a great group of people that had you know, passion for doing it and loved being filmmakers. And even if we were making silly alien movies or whatever we were doing, it was uh, it was great fun. And he he brought me on to Team Wolf. He uh, had I had lunch with him and Jeff one day. And I, to be honest, with the the movies, I wasn't a fan of the films, the original films. You know, I, I thought, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Watch. But I met Jeff and he had this great mythology and he was so smart and just had this brilliant take on it. And uh, I was excited right off the bat to, to do it. So excited that I packed up my family and we drove to Atlanta so that I could work with my uh, old friend, Joe, and my new friend, Jeff. Very nice. That sounds awesome. That sounds awesome. So that was a, a cross-country family move from, or were you, y'all were in LA at the time or were you all somewhere else? No, we were here in L.A. and gotcha. um, it was filming in Atlanta. So packed up my family. We were like, this is going to be an adventure. It's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. We'll go somewhere new and, and uh, make this new show. And it turned out to be all those things. Like, it was the best decision I could have made. Fantastic. Aww. So the cast was pretty young when the show started. And for a lot of them, it was their first major TV role. What was it like directing them in the first season versus the last it was uh, a great experience, and they, they, like you said, they were all they all knew at the beginning. Um, some like Dylan ha- Tyler had done other things. He'd been a child actor, and he'd he'd done um, a lot of stuff, so he knew what it was like to be on set. But for Dylan, you know, I think he got the 
role via like a YouTube audition or something, you know, like they were just doing open calls for, for this role. And I, even though his dad is a cameraman, I don't know if you know that, but his dad is, um, uh, and done a lot of big movies and stuff. So he's, he was, his family was in the industry, but he hadn't been an actor before. And I think on the very first day, what, how, what happens on a set is that, you know, you rehearse a scene and the actors stand in certain places in the set and we know that's where we're going to light them. But while we're lighting, we have stand-ins so the actors can go and rest. And uh, anyway, he, uh, he was standing on his mark and his stand-in came up to take over his mark. And he was like, no, 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 this is my, this is where I'm going to be. You have to find somewhere else in set to be in the scene. If you're going to be in the scene, <laughs> uh, he wouldn't let it go. He was guarding his uh, his mark on the set there until uh, we said, no, it's okay. You know, you you can have a cup of coffee. Just sit over there, and we'll uh, once we're lit and ready to go, you'll get back, and no one is going to take this spot away from you. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, so uh, by the end, he's a pro, and he became a pro like instantly. You know, uh, he's fantastic, a great, and he's just a, just a naturally gifted actor um so by the end you know you're working with pros but also we'd gone through a journey together and like i just said how i packed up my family and went to atlanta everybody had done that you know uh, there was obviously a atlanta crew but uh, the majority of the cast and myself and russell and joe and jeff you know we we're all from la and um when we got there we all sort of hung out together. So the cast hung out together, uh, you know, Tyler, uh, both Tyler's and Dylan, I think shared a house in the first year or two while we were there. And, you know, we all worked together during the week. And then instead of going out and exploring uh, Georgia and making new friends, we just hung out with each other again at the weekends, you know, so we just, <laughs> it was a very, uh, it was like uh, in America, you have camps, right? For school kids. So this was like horror yeah. camp. You, it was it was awesome. camp to go away and make a horror show, and that is my out. dream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it was like that. And it was great because everybody bonded. And anyway, the, to answer your question, by the end, after six after six years of working with the same people, you know, you've you become very close with them. You know, it's people always say movie sets like a family, and and that's often the case. But this one particularly, and they were all super, you know, close friends and. Felt, it felt like directing either family members or like my kids, you know, they were just, because they were much younger than me. I was like the set dad. Uh, <laughs> and often actually had to be the set dad. Now I think about it. Okay. You know? It was, uh, it was, it was very cool. I was very sad when it ended, as was everybody, but it was a great experience. It's it's you directed 35 episodes of Teen Wolf. <laughs> Do you have a favorite episode that you directed either throughout the series or specifically in season one? Well, um, I know that Will likes uh, Night School, and that I was do. my very first episode. Uh, I really do love that episode, and, and I actually did my homework for this because I was a little nervous when uh, after you called me, Will, because I was like, that'll be fun. Yes, I'd love to see Will again and, and talk about Teen Wolf. But I then thought, oh, my goodness, you know, you know more about the episode than I do. So I'd, I watched <laughs> it again and actually watched a few of them from season one. And that one I, I really enjoyed and I and I loved it. It just shows you over time, you do forget stuff because I was literally watching it like I'd never seen it before. I was like, what's going to happen next? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's great. That's terrible danger. <laughs> Um, so I love that one. I also loved, I did, a, I had a, a good run in, um, in the later season. I think I did two or three back to back that I just loved all the scripts. 
you know, all the scripts in Team Wolf were, were fantastic, you know, but but particularly um, I did a, an episode set in World War II called... The Fox the, and the Wolf. Called that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was another one right after that called Echo House. And I love that episode as well. You know, this just, uh, it was a gift for me as a director to do a show like this because... You know, Jeff is such a fantastic writer and you just got such interesting episodes to shoot. Just every episode had fabulous scenes to, to shoot, things that you don't normally get to do. You know, you have comedy and you have romance and you have action, and you have suspense, horror. And he, he would always say to me, like, what's the unexpected thing? You know, he was always trying to make sure that uh, he didn't get predictable or, or, or boring with it. And he never did, obviously. And he, he couldn't never. even if he tried. So... I love those those two episodes in particular, though. I really enjoyed making. Well, going off of what you just said, I feel like Teen Wolf was definitely a show for everyone. It had romance, drama, action, horror. What was your approach in directing comedic scenes versus very emotional scenes versus action scenes? One thing I do is I steal from other really talented, good people. So if I was going to do a chase sequence, I would watch movies that had chase sequences that I remembered loving and I would really watch them you know watch them over and over and and figure out how they had shot them how they had had cut them and what made them so appealing and successful to me uh, so whether it was a comedy or or romance or anything I, I always would look to other people's shows just to see if there's you know something to um, steal from them and Jeff also is a sort of a cinema buff and it just has an encyclopedic knowledge of films he would always you know i would have to go away and like really think about it and and research he would just like we'd be chatting be three in the morning and he would just be able to you know spit out all these japanese movies or european movies that he had seen 20 years before that he remembered in exact detail and um he said remember that scene in you know in that kurosawa film uh, when the you know, the guy comes in and, and he, he would just know he would just remember everything about it and I'll be like I think I saw that but I'd have no recollection of that but I don't even know if that scene in that film so you know we would we would chat about that and that's it that was another great thing but having um, a showrunner and, and the writer who was very cinematic in their writing really helped me as a director shoot it because they'd already put a lot of thought into. Uh, the blocking of the scenes and 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 how it could be shot and what would make it cool and everything. So that was a big part in in making everything successful. You know? Jeff was really good. I mean, he is very knowledgeable about storytelling in general, but he very much wanted to always make sure that the scripts we wrote were that when the director or the DP or anyone read them, they got what was going, what he wanted to uh, accomplish with a certain scene yeah. or the sequence. Yeah, they were very visual. They were, they were like novels, you know, and I, you know, he's, he's, he was so particular. He's the only writer I've ever known who, after we've shot the episode, will go back and put corrections in the script. That's true. Uh, so that it doesn't bug him in years to come when he looks back and think, oh, oh. you know, I, I changed that line on set, but I didn't change it in the script. Uh, so the, the scripts for Team Wolf are, are little novels, you know, for each episode and, they are, they, you know, if anybody wants to learn about script writing, they could, they should read those scripts if they're, I don't know how you get them, but, uh, you know, they should read those because they would be uh, very insightful in how a, a well-crafted episode is written. Absolutely. Very impressive guy. So you, you mentioned watching other things, other movies, other TV shows to get inspiration for an episode. Do you remember 
anything that you drew inspiration from for night school in particular? Mm, golly. Uh, okay, yes, yes. So I love David Pinch's movies, right? So there's a sequence in, um, he did, a, what was it, Alien 3? He did. And I think I'm one of like seven people that saw that film. But, but uh, there's a sequence in that where the alien creature is running along a tunnel, a tube of some kind, and uh, chasing somebody about to do terrible things to them. And it, uh, it ran like up the wall. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm sorry, we do, we, when we rewatched this, Will literally started talking about that scene when we were watching yeah. Night School. Talking about aliens. Really? Why? What aspect of it? Well, it, it, the shot, the the shot where the alpha is chasing them down the corridor, it feels like that shot where the alien is chasing and then goes up along the wall and down back again. And I was actually lamenting that I wish we had had the alpha do that. It would have been very cool, but it just felt like that shot from Alien when he's chasing them into the trap. You know where they're trying um, to lead him into it, and he does all the stuff. And I was like, "That's that's what this is. This is our version of that that moment." So yes, it is. And um, we did actually. There is a version of it where it did go up on the ceiling. Oh, that's so cool! What? That's so awesome. We uh, with that. There's a tunnel in that school. So there's actually only like two, uh, not tunnel, a hallway in that school. There's only like two hallways in that place, and one's got lots of uh, windows on the side. And you will have seen. Uh, there's a scene where uh, Tyler and Styles and um, Scott are walking down the uh, that hallway talking, and it's a very low angle because I didn't want to see out of those windows. One, well, I always yeah. like low angles, but uh, I didn't want to see out the windows because it was snow on the ground. It's supposed to be summer. <laughs> and then the other other hallway is this really long hallway, and because I wanted to do that thing from Alien, it was actually two hallways that met, and there was a wall, and, and uh, it wasn't our school, but we cut a big hole in that wall and made the, a really long tunnel because I just wanted it to go on forever. And I also wanted to be able to drive a vehicle down it, chasing the kids, which is what we did. And we put, a, it was like a, a, a very small pickup truck. And we put on the back of it, the Steadicam operator who had built these extra long skids that, that balanced the Steadicam so that he could swing it up um, in the air and up onto the ceiling. That's awesome. for the creature coming at it and um so that's what we, and so in the in the final version of it, it doesn't quite do that it goes like up the sides of the walls but it never went on the ceiling and i think it was because we 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 when we were jeff was when we were talking about the in post the creature going up on the ceiling and everything we're like it's so big how is it not like falling down? if it would have been a, a real tunnel you know then it would have been solid but this is just like ceiling tiles you know it's not a very right. you know, a uh, strong thing. So how is that creature not just going to fall on its back and look a little silly, like an upside down <laughs> turtle, you know? So that was my lofty ambition was to rip off David Fincher. No, that's actually not rip off, to honor David Fincher. There it I'm is. Not. There you go. Um, they call it and, homage. And that's yeah. Homage, there you go. So that's, that's yeah. the background of that. Homage is theft when you're fancy, basically, right? Exactly, fancy. Yeah. <laughs> Tim, how would you compare working on the shows like NCIS New Orleans and Salem to Teen Wolf? How do I compare it? So obviously every show is different, you know, and every show has its own aesthetic and its own audience. And, and you learn something from, from everything you do because you work with different people and everything. So, you know, those shows and other shows I've done. But uh, Teen Wolf has a special place in my heart. And if the question is, 
how is it different to film it? Is that what you asked? Or is yeah, it, like what's the, you know, is the process on other shows radically different from Teen Wolf or was, uh, you know, because those shows have more money than Teen Wolf yeah. had, especially something like NCIS in yeah. New Orleans. My God. Yeah, sure. We, the thing that made Teen Wolf great, or one of the many things that made Teen Wolf great, you know, was that our goals and sort of standards for ourselves were very high, even though our budget you know, was very low. You know, you mentioned that it's tiny. Um, but because we all loved it, you know, the scripts were great. We loved the cast and, and the characters that um, Jeff created. You know, every, it, was, it was, wasn't just one person's passion project. It wasn't just like, you know, a director or a writer that had always loved it, wanted to do this thing and everybody else was just working on it. It became everybody's passion project. You know, everybody was really invested in that show. And, and it meant a lot to those of us making it. You know, I really was proud of, of everything we did and, and that we were able to make it so cinematic and visually much more you know stylish and, and much more it looked like a much bigger bigger budget show than it had any right to look like you know um but it also meant a lot to you know the people that watched it and i know you've all seen it but i you know every now and again you know when, when you're working on a show you are just like oh this is cool this is fun i'm really excited to shoot this and, and you just sort of enjoy the process but i started meeting people that that watched the show you know that they they would be tours that would come around the stages sometimes and so you'd sort of meet people and and you'd see their reactions and how important the show was to them. And they, obviously they meet the cast and, and, um, and they're the people that they, uh, they, they really um, connected with. And, and it sort of dawned on me how important the show was because it dealt with a lot of issues. You know, it, you know on one level, it's just, a, you know, it's a silly little MTV show about werewolves, but, but it dealt with a lot of issues for for kids, adolescents who were watching it and help them a lot. You know, a lot of people would come up to me and I'm just, I'm just the director behind the scenes. You know, they don't see me on the show. They don't have any connection with me, but they would just tell me and they would get emotional and cry and tell me how important it was and how it had helped them with something or they had faced something that one of the characters, you know, uh, represented in the show or something. And, um, and even years later, like I did another show after Team Wolf ended in Toronto and J.R. Bourne was on it with me. So, you know, J.R. and I, were ha- we had lunch one day and we were walking around Toronto and this, like, horde of, of uh, French kids, like, surrounded him. And I'm just laughing at him, like, while well, he's just sort of, like, uncomfortably in the middle of it all. And, um, and they, were, they were so overwhelmed to see somebody from Team Wolf because it meant so much to them. Um, and they couldn't, they actually, uh, they were speaking French, they couldn't speak English, and I don't speak French very well, but they were just bawling, you know, and, and you just knew that it meant so much to them. And I don't even know if they'd watched it when it was first aired and they were young. So they may have watched it in, you know, on, on Amazon or Netflix or wherever and seen it much later. But there's a, you know, it come from that. I sort of, I, I took it more seriously once I started seri- uh, you know, seeing these sort of reactions. Um, well, I always took it seriously, but I, I realized that it, it meant a lot to people. So I, I sort of felt that. Uh, responsibility in my own little part of it, you know, to make sure that we never, never uh, let anybody down. You know? Yeah. Since we've started our Instagram page, we've had a lot of people reach out to us with very emotional stories about Teen Wolf. And uh, the big consensus is that everyone wants more. Uh, I was surprised by how many new fans there were, like 13, 14 year old kids. Yeah. Do you think that there was ever a revival or spinoff? Would you want to be part of the Teen Wolf world? Would you want to return to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of me thinks that, you know, I'm 
a middle-aged guy, you know, should I be the guy doing it? You know, but I love doing it. So sure. Yes. I want to do it again. The, uh, the net, you know, MTV, they were talking about spinoffs and, uh, and reboot. Actually, no, they were talking about rebooting it when we hadn't even finished shooting season six, you know, um, so, uh, I'm, sh- I'm very sure that there will be a reboot of Team Wolf in the future at some point. Well, we'll be very excited to hear that. Yes, absolutely. Some of the episodes that you directed had a lot of action in them. What was it like working with the stunt doubles and fight choreographers of Team Wolf? Well, we were very lucky uh, because we got two of the um, best stunt coordinators in the industry uh, Gary Stearns and Bryson Counts, and they were friends. And they did all they did all the mar- they do big Marvel movies, you know, King Kong and any big action movie, Disney movies that you that uh, people see. So they did not normally do television. And I can't even remember how we. I interviewed Gary on the phone pre Zoom days, and and I and I was laughing as I looked at his resume because it was just one massive movie after another, and. You know, I had never met him, but I immediately just assumed I could I could joke with him. So I was uh, I, I was joking that like oh, I don't know if your if your resume is you know quite good enough. <laughs> oh no! Micro budget MTV show. I mean, you've only done you know Thor and the Avengers and stuff like that. Are they, um, were they difficult? I can't. I don't know if I've seen those. You know, I was, you know, it was just ridiculous that we were even uh, talking to him. But he wanted. He had young kids at the time, so this was gave him a, a job that he could do and stay. Um, you know, uh, in California and not have to be traveling you know, all over the world with, with those films. So I think it just was the right time for him. And Bryson, who was always uh, a great friend of his, likewise does all these these big movies. And the only way that they could, they, you know, it's hard for them to turn down a big movie. So. You know, we would be shooting a season and one of them would say, look, I'm going to go off for you know, three weeks to Australia or, you know, Hawaii, wherever. But, you know, the other one will cover me. So it was great for us because we got top level people um, and it made they could sort of fill it in. And they stuck with the show because, again, they loved it. They, it wasn't they could made they could have made a lot more money doing um, other things, but they really love the show and the people. We were very lucky. Indeed, we were very lucky. What was your process for approaching each episode of Teen Wolf when you were given a new script that you'd end up directing? The great thing that we had was that Jeff was on set with us. You know, sometimes you do a show and you're filming it, you know, in New Mexico or Vancouver or somewhere, and the, the writers are in LA and they don't see the locations of the sets. And so it's it's sometimes trickier to you know take a scene or a a script and sort of make it work where you are with the locations you have and you know i I was blocking it when i'm figuring out a scene you know i have to figure out the blocking where the actors are going to be you know like in the script that they've got to like walk in a door and immediately see out of a window that the bad guy is stealing their car you know you have to have a set that allows you to do that the great thing with jeff is that he would be there so we would walk around the sets and the locations and he's such a perfectionist, you know, he would, he would recite, we'd read the dialogue, you know, we'd play the different parts. And, and if it was supposed to be a walk and talk down a hallway that had to end at a certain line at a door, you know, we would act it out. You know, we'd meet over the weekends and walk it all through and everything. And, uh, and so it all, it all fitted very, very well because it was all constructed um, knowing the locations and the sets and, and what would work better. So we didn't have to sort of retrofit a, a script into places that didn't uh, didn't work very well for them so we you know we would do we would do that and 
you know, you need to obviously do casting and so forth and any additional parts that you need for that episode. And then you would, I would always shot list to make sure you have a shot list and a storyboard because the other thing about Team Wolf is that, you know, you did not waste any time, you know. So I, you, know, you got to make sure that you know exactly what you need so that there's no standing around on set just trying to figure it out. Um, you know, a lot of shows, you know, would do an action sequence and, or answer any sequence. And it was a big day if they had 30 or 40 setups, you know, camera setups in a day. You know, on Team Wolf, we, we topped 100 regularly uh, because, you know, we just had to be really organized and had to uh, work at that pace. And I enjoyed it. I think everybody did, actually, because we would just work at a really fast clip uh, all, all day long. So nobody got bored because it was moving on, moving on to the next thing, the next thing. And that was how we were able to, you know, produce a good-looking episode in seven days, which was better than many shows who would shoot for nine or ten days. That's very true. We were a very good-looking show for such a short amount of time to be able to film, you know, because you look at some other shows that have, it feels like, a leisurely schedule. You know, that's like, oh, you have ten days. My God, you have three more days or four more days. And then it's like, well, we have seven days to shoot an entire movie's worth of content that's going to be 42 minutes of an episode. Uh, But... You're right. It, everyone moved very, very fast. And there was never there was never a time when we would walk on a set and be like people just kind of looking around and trying to figure out what they were going to shoot. There was always a list and JD was cracking the whip and Dave Daniels got his guys are already pre-lighting <laughs> the next day or the next set. And it's like we're just waiting to to move on and, and we're turning the cameras around and getting ready to shoot. And no one has time to go to their their trailers because we're about to roll and it's it was fantastic we, yes, we moved was, so fast we tried to make the trailers as possible so that nobody wanted to go to the trailers right exactly uh, the um you mentioned i think it's wolfsbane you like the beginning of wolfsbane i think you mm-hmm. told me yeah um, i love that teaser that episode that opening sequence the the chase that is the one with the chase right with the, the car chase and uh, yeah into the iron and all that right so that one has the record that we did um we shot that in one night when I think we had like 118 setups in that one night. And that's oh the Team Wolf record. My gosh. Um, and also with that, we were talking about stunts. Um, the other great thing was we had uh, act, you know, these, these young actors that were very athletic. And Tyler Hecklin, I don't know if you know, but he was he could have been like a pro baseball player. Right? He was a very, uh, very athletic guy. And um, in that scene, you'll see... Uh, him, he's he's running in front of these cars, these police cars that are chasing him, and that's actually him. There was never a double. It's it's entirely him. And wow. in my mind, the two sides of my brain are going, "This looks fantastic because I can see it's him, and and it looks like we're going really fast, and there's a lot of peril and danger." And then the other side of my brain was like, "Oh my god, it really is him, and there is a lot of peril and danger." How can we do this? But anyway, we did it and he was great. And there's a moment where he slides. I remember that bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that was his suggestion. I was like, oh my, because he that's like a baseball thing. You know, when you're sliding into one of the bases. Like, yeah. Slide into. And, uh, yeah. Bases. Yeah, and, sports. Uh, we all know sports. <laughs> and uh, he did that. I was like, and it, he talked about it. He's like, I could slide here. I was like, that's going to look great. And the director in me is saying, absolutely. The producer side of me is saying, you're insane because there's three cars coming at you at speed. One of them's driven by Lyndon, another actor. I had no idea if Lyndon was a good a good driver or not. <laughs> uh, and uh, and then 
but that was the team teamwork. We we did it and it looked great. And the other funny thing with those sort of sequences in that in those uh, early days when we were in Atlanta, that we didn't have any picture cars. You know, normally you rent cars from a company that knows what you're going to do with them and that um, you know they're okay if you you know destroy their vehicles. So with the, the early days in Atlanta, we didn't have that. We we were getting them from like Enterprise or some rental company. <laughs> and then we'd, then we'd use them in these action sequences. And one of them, I remember Kate, right? She she had she had a little green Kia Soul vehicle and and she had to shoot a shotgun up through the ceiling and and there was a werewolf on the top. I can't remember who it was. And uh, so she shot she shoots the shotgun and it set fire to the ceiling of the, of the car. Oh god. <laughs> uh, like, oh, I think it's fine. You know, just get a wet towel and put it out. And oh, um and then uh, the black car that uh, Derek's car, when he gets uh, shot at by JR by Argent uh, in um in Wolfsbane in this episode we're talking about. You know, they're, they're shooting. We really had people shooting at that car with, um, you know, uh, I don't know whether it was, I think I guess it's pellets or something like that, but that's the real actors there. And they were shooting pellets all over this thing. And again, I was like, oh my God, what are we doing? Um, it looked great. But that car, when we handed it back, I don't know if we can air this thing. I don't want to. I was maybe really upset. Oh, right now. But anyway, it's probably past the statute of limitations, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the car would go, we sent it back, and it looked like somebody had taken a hammer to it and had just put a million dents in that vehicle. And we're like, but we took oh. out their insurance. So this is okay. Well, there you go. As long as you sign for that insurance, it doesn't matter how you bring that's it right. back, as that's long incredible. as the tank is full. So, you know, that's, that's, that's right. all that Most matters. Part. That's just courtesy. That's cur- yes. That is courtesy. <laughs> and as we've discussed, politeness is very important to werewolves. So politeness yes, is very important. Speaking of shooting all the great action sequences for Team Wolf from you know both in Atlanta and in Los Angeles, did you prefer block shooting to shooting single episodes at a time? I'm not sure that's a very smooth segue, Will. <laughs> no, it, it, no, <laughs> I, I said I mediocre. I I said me. I was up front. The whole time. Right. Okay. So uh, um, I now I've forgotten what the question was. So shooting, oh, block shooting and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. So what, which do I, we did block, block shooting is more efficient. So when you shoot, uh, we used to shoot three episodes at a time. So like I would, you know, Russell and I alternated. So um, the great Russell Mulcahy, who I was a huge fan of, by the way, I was very excited to meet him because yeah. I was a fan. Of his. Uh, so he would direct three episodes and then, I would direct three episodes and we'd flip block. So that was block shooting. Um, and the advantage is not a very noble advantage. The advantage, well, I suppose it's noble. It saves money. So, you know, on our little budget, it was very efficient to do that because we would take all the school scenes from those three episodes, go to the school and shoot them all. And, and then we didn't have to waste time and money moving the company, moving all the trucks and everything back and forth. You know, literally right. the gas money to move all those trucks was worth it, you know, to, saving that money was worth it. So the benefit to me, I did prefer that because what that gives you is, is actually like more time because the time you waste moving, you know, if, if, if on a day you're filming and then you at lunchtime have to move somewhere else, you know, that's filming time that you lose. So by doing it this way, you know, I would get a lot more time. And if, I, and if I'm shooting a scene in the school and I, and I, I think about it the next day and I feel like, oh, I really should have got that extra shot or something else, or I should redo something that I wasn't happy with it. You know, I've got the luxury of being able to do that because I'm still there. Right. You know, so it made, it was very helpful to perfect the episodes 
you know, for, for Russell and for myself. It's tough on the writers because you have to have all the scripts done in advance. Yeah. And, um, you know, so it's, you know, you often get into the situation on, on shows where, you know, you're running, you're, the, the production's caught up with the scripts. You know, the scripts, you know, you're shooting an episode and a new one starts on Monday and you don't have the script for that one yet. Uh, I'm not saying that ever happened on Team Wolf, but it does happen on lesser shows. Not once uh, on Teen Wolf. So anyway, block shooting would be my would be my favorite. No, we 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 knew about all that because sometimes Will would be like, "Hey, you guys, I can't hang out this weekend because we have to finish the script in like two days." So <laughs> and it made him stronger. Thank you. I am a much stronger person because of that. No, there was there was a time in I think it was season five where we worked 21 days straight the writers did uh because we had i think a it was either a completed outline or we were right on the cusp of completing an outline and then had to change everything i don't remember what the reason was but we had to throw it out and start over and it really sucked because uh we again worked three weeks without a day off just straight all the way through and i remember we would this was maybe during the summertime at some point and this was back when we were at 8500 Balboa, Tim at our first campus up in the valley, and the AC would not be turned on in for the writer's room over the weekends. And so it would just be baking saving in there. Money. Yes, uh, saving money. <laughs> so what we did was is we would just get all these folding tables from the lunchroom and take them into the uh, post-production area because the ACs were always on there to keep the computers and the servers going and all that. So we would have to just pile in there and set up all these folding tables and into a giant square and sit in there and work. And we managed, but hey, we got the outline done and the script finished and I'm sure Joe Janier wasn't too upset with us. Team Wolf wasn't a job. Team Wolf was a lifestyle. Absolutely yep. it was. Yep. And it was yeah. fantastic. There was no such thing as a day off. And then and there was always this friendly rivalry between the writer's room and the production. Because you know, everybody felt that they had the harder, harder time of it. You know, so I would sometimes, you know, walk in and, and I'd find Jeff like on the ground, sprawled out like a dead body on the carpet. Right. And uh, <laughs> I have pictures of that. I have pictures yeah. of that. So yeah. And he would just and then in a you know humorous fashion, he would just be moaning and just saying how he can't possibly write another word. And you know, that's MTV doesn't deserve um you know another script out of him and all it was just very funny. You know, he was moaning like that. And then Joe or I, or both sometimes, because we both found it very funny, would just uh you know kneel down next to him and say, Are you done? Because uh, <laughs> pages for Monday. So you need to get back up. And get in front of your standing desk and that really big screen and bang out some pages, okay? Yeah. And uh, you know it was all very uh, we we enjoyed those moments. It was funny. He would just uh, and he would just roll over and just, you bastards, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's true. No, there he had that standing desk and he just rolled it like he'd roll it out onto stage and he'd be working if somebody needed him and he'd roll it into the into the into the weight room where he'd be working out and there are plenty of times where he's he'd be working out. I was like, Will, we're going to the we're going to the weight room. It's like, okay, so I'd get the desk, just push it in and sit there and and type while he's while he's doing bench presses like some Greek god or something. And I, and he's <laughs> and he's calling out dialogue. He's like, and this guy says, Aah! and I'm like, he screams like, no, no, that was just me. So um yeah, no, it's that was it. There was no off time. And you're right, it was a lifestyle, but it was so worth it. 
so it worth it. Great. I mean, he he was able to generate all those all those scripts, even though he was exhausted, and it, yeah. it was a monumental workload. I, again, I, it was it was the only show where I think uh, we got greenlit for one season. I can't remember where it was. And early on in the days, uh, season two or three, and and they uh, oh no, I think we had um, we had got MTV to agree that we we're going to have a hiatus. We we're going to have like some months off, mm-hmm. right? Everybody's very excited about uh, three months off. I think we were going to have, and and then he got the call. And I think Joe and I were there when he uh, got this call, and they were like, "Hey, you know that three months off thing? So we're not going to do that. We're going to do like three days. How about that? Just you know, relax, kick back, do what you want, go anywhere, um, and then we start <laughs> up in three days." And <laughs> so Joe and I were like, "God." Jeff might actually explode. Like we may actually witness spontaneous combustion because yeah. he was so looking for Greece. He was going to go on holiday. I remember. Re- yeah. And um, we're like, no, none of that's going to happen. You're just going to, it's just like a long weekend. You're just going to take <laughs> off Monday and uh, and then start writing the new season. Oh, wow. It was rough. That's crazy. It, it was rough because I do remember being in the writer's room when we're all kind of like winding down. It's like we're in the last, we're in the home stretch. It's like you see the finish line and everyone's like, oh, we're going to do this and that. And then Jeff just kind of shuffles in <laughs> and you know something's wrong. He's like, so we're just working. We're just, you know, season four, they want it next week. And it's like, but we haven't finished 3B yet. He's like, doesn't matter. Just we're doing it. It's like, okay. Bad news bears. Bad news bears. Bad news writers. But bad news production oh, and crew and everybody. So yeah, that's a good. It was a good problem because it meant that it was so successful that that they just wanted more and more. And I read a thing. I see at this at that time they think this uh, Variety or um, Hollywood Reporter, one of these one of the trades, had a front on the front cover. Um, they said that uh, MGM, which owned the rights to the Team Wolf title. Uh, MGM is, which had been struggling for many years, suddenly was back in business, all thanks to James Bond and Team Wolf. Teen Wolf. I remember wow. that. I and, remember uh, that. So that's it saved crazy. MGM, you know, so that's, so it was really you know, super successful for everybody involved. No, it was great. And we all got to work on it for a long time. It was wonderful. Employment is amazing. So, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of crazy for it to be, you know, mentioned in the same headline as, something like James Bond, which is, you know, one of the most profitable IPs of all time. And then it's like, and this MTV show that was adapted from an 80s teen movie that like half the audience either hasn't seen or doesn't like. Yes. (laughs) Those two things, both of those things. That's crazy. Rarified air. Stock and Styles are definitely two of the funniest characters on the show. We were curious about how much like improv happened with them. And as a director, how do you feel about improv? I am not a huge fan of improv. So on the whole, it's something I prefer actors not to do because I always feel like the writer and Jeff is a great writer. So I always feel like they've written the funnier lines because they've they've sat down and really you know, honed it and thought it through and pared it down until it's, you know, until it really works. Often it's less funny if people, you know, add to it or the scene doesn't end, you know, just sort of just drifts on and there's no solid punchline. Or they're not thinking about it in terms of, you know, the end of one scene has to set up what it, what happens immediately in the beginning of the next scene, you know? So there's that. Dylan, though, is really funny. And, and, and there were a lot of uh, times there were things that he would say that would end up in the show. 
you know, you always do this, you always sort of ask actors to do it as scripted and then like, okay, do one where you're ad-libbing or whatever. And and Dylan, you know, was was really able to to spit out lines. I mean, he he was, I think he even talked to Jeff about writing an episode. There was conversations about him because he's such a, he's such a talented uh, person and I, I think he would easily write something great in the future himself, you know, um, and I, th- I think we talked about him writing on Team Wolf at some point. Orny came from the background of being a stand-up comic. So... You know, he was great. He was perfect in that role. Jeff had seen him in a uh, in a comedy club and just saw him as as the coach uh, from that. So he was he was great in it. But he didn't initially. He obviously he he, he uh, got up to speed pretty quickly. But initially, you know, he had no idea about doing takes the same way each time. He's an editor's nightmare because he, you know, we <laughs> and and you know he would we would like for him to be at the front of the classroom and he's going to say his lines there and then take two he walks to the back of the classroom and sits down in a chair and I'm like well my god you're not even on camera at this point <laughs> um, so you know there was a little bit of uh, a learning curve there but uh, you know he was he was great in the role on, on those two uh, those two I probably would give a little slack for for ad libbing. But on the whole, not my favorite thing. And like, and for instance, me right now, I would be a lot more entertaining and funnier if I was scripted and if Jeff had written. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is wonderful. Script. This is great. Do you have any fun memories from season one that you'd like to share? Fun memory? Well, it's many because it was just, I said earlier on, it was it was great. It was like going away on camp with all these people and everybody just really bonded. My kids were with me a lot, uh, well, all the time. So they they grew up on that set. And, um, and so Dylan and Tyler were, you know, they were like three, um, four or five years older than my kids. And they were like their older brothers, you know, they would all hang out together. And like they, uh, Dylan and Tyler, we had an episode where they were on an ice rink and they, Dylan and Tyler taught my kids to ice skate and, um, awesome. and they played across together. And my youngest daughter at the time was, would just treat them, <laughs> treat them like they were her servants or her, uh, <laughs> Would just send them off. Like I, you know, she would. They, she would hurl. They had one. I think they. She told me this. I was asking her about this the other day. She said Dylan said, "Let's play lacrosse." And, and she was like, "We only have one lacrosse stick, Dylan." And she was. She was like, "These boys, they're not so smart." Um, <laughs> how, how are we going to play? And so, that the game they evolved was that she would just basically hurl the the ball and. Dylan and Tyler, as dogs, would go and search for it. In the <laughs> so, like, they occupied them. You know, they kept themselves, you know, uh, entertained uh, on the shoot days. Um, and But I do remember that another thing, uh, they taught them ice skating, but they also taught them uh, bad language. And, uh, you know, oh. on the, you know, the actors are wired. And then between takes, you know, normally you're wearing headphones and normally they get turned down so you don't hear what they're saying. My kids are on set with me and they're sitting at the video village and they're watching the cameras get set up and they're wearing headsets. So they're hearing everything. And uh, many times I would hear Dylan and Tyler say something or laugh or joke or say, you know, use some bad language. And I would look at them and then they would immediately look at me and (laughs) I busted. And they were like, oh my God. Oh my God, I'm so sorry, Tim, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Because uh, my kids are now laughing and they've now learned a new word. You know? And uh, so I thank, if Dylan and Tyler ever watch this, I thank you both very much for teaching my daughters how to swear. <laughs> Team Wolf pays off in many unexpected ways. <laughs> You've talked about some very iconic scenes that you shot in the first season. Uh, which one is your favorite? 
my favorite scene of the first season. Gosh, so many. I'd have to re re review it all. But I the ones that I remember, I really enjoyed that were very unusual. Well, I enjoyed that action sequence. I always loved doing action. So that thing that we did with uh, uh, Tyler being chased and, and being shot at and all that stuff, that was a great fun night. But the things that I think were the really interesting that we got to shoot on Team Wolf that you never get to shoot on other shows were sort of the weird, mentally uh, confusing sort of scenes. Like there's a scene there in one of the episodes there with uh, Colton on a, on a doctor's bench and we're... Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's Tyler's dad as playing the doctor, right? So he's pulling this vine or something out of his neck. I remember doing yeah. that. And he's screaming and there's he's got a strap on his chin, I think. And there's all this sort of flowers and blood. I remember like pouring blood all over these flowers on the ground and everything. And um, and, and so those, those were really, they're weird and they're funny, you know, fun to do. And, and it's always the, the thing in shows that the scary scenes or the horror scenes, which hopefully make somebody watching the show just like you know not take their eyes off it or or, or take their eyes away because they can't watch because it's scary or whatever when you're doing them they're actually the sort of the funny scenes to do everybody's laughing you know because it's you know it's in, in real life it seems ridiculous but those were great fun and i remember doing lots of scenes with colton actually colton always got tortured a lot i seem to remember yes. <laughs> yeah. quite a few times mm -hmm. you know I, he had i remember getting a snake or something out of his mouth he had to cough up a snake i think he, uh, he had a snake come out of his eye socket oh yeah wolf. and his, his eyeball like goes like that it looks fit i i'm a big like horror movie freak and i love that scene <laughs> it's a great scene. Uh, you see that shows you what a good actor he is that he could act a snake out of his eye yeah you know we didn't have much money for cg so a lot of it was practical <laughs> it looks awesome so tim I, as i've said earlier in this in this interview, uh, I think uh, Night School is my favorite episode of season one. Was it difficult finding ways to keep the story in the episode propulsive despite essentially being stranded with these characters in one location? That was a great script. So I don't think I ever had any fears about that just because it's like a ticking time bomb. You know, it's just it just relent. It's, just, it's relentless. It's like the um, the shark in Jaws, you know, like, you, you know, they're only on a little boat. And they wanted a bigger boat, but they can have one. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, you don't ever question yourself. Like, I wish they'd had a, you know, maybe a, a jet ski just to mix it up. You know, like, <laughs> um, you know, they, you don't care about that because you've got great characters that you, that you do care about. You know, um, the actors are great. The characters are really fun and you're all invested in those guys. So I don't think I worried about that because it just, in the script, it was just, uh, there was no, like, boring scene there was no dull moment where nothing was happening you know i think i had i had concerns perhaps about the geography of the school and just making sure that it all made sense to anybody watching and i think when you're directing something you you possibly think about that stuff more than it really matters because mm -hmm. i don't think people watching really care too much about uh, about that you know they're just watching the scenes and but i i, I was a bit worried because even though it was a big school it was, a, it was an abandoned school a closed down school which my yeah my children told me afterwards that they were actually terrified of when we were, we were there and I, I made them go there Aww. often. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> it was because um, it was it was a big abandoned school, but the only we only shot we only could shoot certain sections. So there's like I mentioned earlier, there's only these two hallways, and and so you see the one hallway over and over again. But I thought it just looked so great; it didn't bother me. I just it just looks right. 
eerie and because we'd made it extra long you know we just had these sort of lights coming in from certain doorways and stuff it just looked spooky and I again it was one of those situations where I'd walked through every scene with Jeff and he's you know so helpful with like how he had imagined scenes playing out and we we're like oh we could do this here and then he would you know if 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 he liked uh, an idea or, or a, a piece of that school or a, as a location he would adjust the script to work you know for that and everything to answer your question I didn't worry about it being um, the nature of the story being, you know, propulsive or uh, being um, engaging, just because the script was so was just so strong. Do you like the challenge of filming a more like bottle episode that's uh, one spot, or do you like the variety of going uh, to different locations when shooting an episode? Well, you know, it's just variety, and that's a great thing you had with with Team Wolf. You didn't ever have to do the same thing over and over again and even you know because you know it has the all these great elements you know you've got horror and comedy because they go hand in hand and you've got romance and you've got drama and action you know uh suspense so you had all these things all the time in different mixes of them in every episode often what happens when you're shooting you just you're, you're on location and you're initially like excited because you know the, the place looks great and then you realize oh it's going to look really great at night which means i'm not going to get any sleep because uh, I'm going to be coming here all night. And then after a few nights of it, you're like, oh my God, get me back to the stage. So then you go back to the stage and you're like, oh, thank God. You know, you can, you're safe. Like it doesn't matter if it rains. I actually did on our stages because we had uh, stages where uh, we had tin roofs, which we didn't realize would be really loud when it rained. It was, you know, you just, you just had this this great variety all the time with that show, which you don't get necessarily on on other shows. Night school takes place entirely at night. It's the name and everything. Was it hard to shoot an episode that's like dark the entire time, like visually dark? We re- we realized early on that werewolves do not look great in daylight. So <laughs> um, you, know, you you quickly adjust to Teen Wolf being a, a nocturnal show, and we all have to become nocturnal. So you're just working nights. I, I remember doing three weeks of nights in the woods in Atlanta. Uh, and it had snowed, so the ground's really cold and uh, icy and, and uncomfortable to stand on after, you know, 12 hours. But ultimately, just, you know, it just looks better, you know. So you just, you know, you wouldn't do it if you weren't enthusiastic about the end result. And, uh, and I would always, you know, what, as, a, as a human being, I'd be like, maybe I'd prefer to be in bed or I'd prefer <laughs> to be filming on somewhere. But, you know, when you're, you're in the film industry, you look at the monitors and you think, that looks spectacular. You know, we, I mean, I, we, we made it harder on ourselves. You know, I'm all, I was always, people groan in production meetings because we'd read scenes and stuff and I'd be like, and it's raining. <laughs> and be like, oh God, do we have, I'd be like, get it out now, you know, because yes, we are going to do it because it will just be cool. So, you know, even though we're in California, Beacon Hills is a, has got its own microclimate and it was always <laughs> hot and it always rained. And even our daylight, we made daylight. We were like, this is like daylight in Norway, you know, somewhere <laughs> where they have a very low sun, you know, and um, we never had, you know, it was never a bright, sunny school. You know, it was always, even at noon, you know, dark and creepy. Yeah. I want to thank you for all the rain suggestions because I love the Teen Wolf rain scenes. They're always so They're beautiful. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Tim, for uh, our listeners who don't know, what is the rehearsal process like on a typical episode of Team Wolf? Um, very, very quick, because again, that was stuff that we um, we we didn't want to, you know, you don't used to do some shows and everybody's at a more leisurely pace and you and you've got time to really um, work it out. But 
you know, I would always have a plan and it might change, but I would always have a plan of like what I, where I wanted the actors to be and, you know, when people are moving on what lines and all this sort of stuff. And, and we didn't spend too much time diverging from that just because, you know, we needed to get shooting, you know, you, you got a, a successful shooting day is all like about momentum. You got to get going quickly. Right. And keep going. So if we say, for instance, had a, a guest actor in that wasn't familiar with the show, then after we blocked it, I might take the actors off set so the crew can still work, light it and set the cameras up and everything and and have people run that scene, you know, so they get familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was action stuff, ideally, we would rehearse, you know, the day before or days before with the stunt coordinators so that you know the fight is all figured out and then and the stunt coordinators film it you know on an ipad or their phone or whatever and and show me the fight and then we would you know talk about it and say okay so you know let's have add another few punches here or take out a kick here or say that you know we'll insert a line here so they have to like stop for a second because we always wanted again the fights we would always i think they were better on team wolf than on some shows because you would we would always want to have them be uh representative of the character so like this character doesn't suddenly know jujitsu or something like this character is has never had any formal training so they're going to be scrappy when they fight you know and this other person that they're fighting you know is part leopard so they're going <laughs> to you know, they're going to have certain skills that that other people would not have you know so um, and, and, and again, Jeff with the writing, you know, write dialogue would happen during a fight scene. So it's not just punch, 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 punch until we're bored of it and then talk again. You know, it was sort of all integrated. So that stuff needed um, more rehearsal time because that's choreography. You have to learn the choreography, you know. You've kind of told us your approach to how you start leading up to directing an episode. What was like a typical day like once you've started directing? So you arrive at 6 p.m. when the sun's going down and everybody says good morning to you because in our world, it's morning. And you get served breakfast by Laurent at the catering truck. So you're eating, your your meals are all out of whack with the rest of the world. Um, And then then you look at the special effects makeup stuff and you're like, oh, more blood. It needs more blood. Everything needs more blood. (laughs) You just add add more blood to everything uh then you test the rain towers because it's always raining like i said so there would be uh they they'd test those and no more heavier rain and so you know we'd order more water trucks i think we went through one night like nine water trucks because oh um, we had to it was on a it was on a later episode we were uh, it was a scene on the um on a lacrosse field there were horses and uh all sorts of stuff going on it was just to wrench that that field was a mud pit by the end of it so you test the water things make sure they're working well then uh you start shooting some massive action complicated action sequence that on any other show would be two or three days worth of filming and and we're going to do it by lunch and then uh lunch rolls around at midnight and suddenly you've got you know six hours left of shooting and the sun's coming up and you're scrambling like mad. So you abandon all your previous plans and just shoot as much as you can, as quickly as you can. And then even when the sun is coming up, I'm screaming at everybody that we can still keep filming because if we look down, we can't tell that the sky is blue. And, <laughs> and then you would go home, you'd scrape ice off your car because it was freezing and go home, collapse, get up again and do it all over again every night for six years. <laughs> Well, what a job! It came out beautiful. So, <laughs> well, you know what though, and I loved every minute of it. And and I'm I'm obviously making a joke about it, but uh, 
you know, everybody did. It was fantastic. Well, we're still talking about it 10 years later. So, yes, we are. And, and we, we get many messages every day being like, could you please tell MTV that we would like a season seven? <laughs> Just call MTV. Tell them more, please. Yeah, you know. <laughs> hey, MTV, it's okay. us. Yes. So in addition to directing, you were an executive producer on Teen Wolf. What did that entail? That meant uh, I got a better parking spot and basically meant that you are there all the time. Like you're, So even if I'm not directing an episode, I'd still be there. And you're either working on future episodes or basically helping out the showrunner, Jeff, in this case. you know, So you're helping him make sure that while he's busy writing that the rest of the show is happening and being shot the way he would like, that locations we're picking are things that he would like, that uh, sets we're building are are in the vein of the rest of the show. Because sometimes you get new people in and they're not as familiar with the show. So it's, you know, you're just trying to be his eyes and ears while he's not around. So you wore a lot of hats. Yes, I guess. But it was, again, it's all good because the more involved you are, the more invested you are. And I do think the shows that work, the shows that I like when you watch them often just have a small group of people that are passionate about that project and they all work on it all the time and they're friends and they all get along and work together. And, and that's what Team Wolf was. You know, we, um, we all loved it and, and wanted it to be as great as it could be. And, but it wasn't a huge production by any means. You know, there really was just a small group of people, a small crew, really. And, but we were very efficient. Tim, you and Russell were supervising directors on the show. What was it like with the two of you working together and then with our guest directors to keep a visual continuity between the episodes without the show getting stale? Well, like I mentioned earlier, Russell Mulcahy is one of my heroes. He's fantastic, right? I, I'd admired his his movies and his music videos. You know, he, he, he was the king of the music videos. You know, he, like, he made all these iconic music videos that are still shown today when MTV started out, you know, and he worked with Duran Duran and Elton John and uh, Rod Stewart, and, you know, any big name group at the time and um, what that when I've looked back on that or reflected on that now and I realized that you know he was always trying to make sure that his video every video he made was spectacular but different from the last one you know he didn't want to get stale and and he brought that to to Team Wolf as well I think because you know we never set ourselves in stone like oh we always do you know, transitions like this, or we always do, I don't know, some flashback like this. You know, we, we never locked ourselves into that so that, you know, season one and season six were different. You know, they looked, they looked stylist, stylistically different. And for me, you know, you just get more confident or you get more familiar with certain things and you like certain things, your taste change, you know, you, or you see, again, you know, I'd see some other show, I'd see uh, a movie and I'd be like, oh my God, now I feel like everything I did, you know, a few years ago is... Is old fashioned, and and that's that's sort of a cutting edge approach, you know. And I, and so we were both like that. And for me, you know, I'd watch his episodes, and I would be like, oh, that's that's so much better than anything I've ever done. You know, I've got now I've got to improve my my performance, my game. I've got to I've got to compete and and match or try to match, you know, what he's done. You know, um, yeah. so it was a good a good rival not rivalry is not necessarily the right word, but it was a good sort of inspiration for me anyway, because, you know, it's, it's that thing people talk about where you, you know, if you play tennis with somebody, you want to play tennis with somebody that's better than you and you get better yourself, you know, it sort of right. like challenges you to try harder. So I loved working with him as sort of like my, my teammate 
on the show. And there were times we really were literally back to back. And there were a few scenes where he, there was one scene I remember, I think, yeah, this is season one. So like there's the bus sequence, right? With mm-hmm. the uh, with the alpha and everything. And we Mentality. had two yeah. So we had two buses literally right next to each other so that we could light both of them with the same lights. And and he's shooting, you know, scenes in, in his and I'm doing bits and pieces in the other bus. I had, we had one that was like cut in half so you could sort of see under the chairs. And But I remember dragging people, you know, like from one end of the bus to the other one, you know. <laughs> I'm sure they enjoyed it immensely. Yes, so much fun, I'm so, sure. Uh, I'm sure we took all the bolts and all the rough bits out of the bottom of that bus but anyway so it was great you know for me to have admired somebody as a filmmaker him and then get to actually work with him and we would laugh and it was just fantastic you know doing that and there was some I don't know what I don't know what episode it was or what we were doing but there was some moment where I was filming some scene and there was a black cloth like a curtain behind me and on the other side of the curtain, Russell was shooting something else. You know, that was, that was as sophisticated as we could. It was just so that, you know, he could just, just so we could keep shooting and keep, make the show as quickly as we could. And, and there was a moment where I bumped into him, like back to back with, through this curtain. And I remember laughing and him laughing on the other side because we literally were working back to back on the show together as you know uh, as teammates so you know uh, I, I uh, Russell's a good friend of mine I love Russell and I'm one of the gifts one of the many gifts that Team Wolf gave me was to get the opportunity to to work with him just pay no attention to the man behind the curtain exactly, exactly. <laughs> your daughters Claire and Lily both played characters on the show starting in season four mm-hmm. and we now know that they taught Tyler Posey and Dylan O'Brien to fetch. So that's exciting. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> what was it like working with them? I loved it every minute of it. I, I, that was, again, that was a joy that this show gave me because they've traveled with me all over on different jobs, you know, because you get a job somewhere, you know, New Mexico or Atlanta or um, New Orleans, where you know, wherever it might be. And so they would come with me and They've grown up on sets, and but Team Wolf was, you know, it sort of hit them at, a, at their at the formative years. You know, the six years of Team Wolf, and so they loved the show and were very familiar with it, and then obviously know all the cast and everything. And we would go to parties every week with the whole cast, uh, screening parties at Jeff's house, and they would come with me, and um, so they were there, and they were when we're filming. Even, you know, I'm talking about these night shoots and everything. They're there with me. You know, they're just they're on a nocturnal schedule with me, and they've always been in a professional theater group near where we live and they were always part of that theater group even as young children they were the only kids is an adult theater company but they were the only kids uh, in it and uh, Jeff came to see them in um, some of their shows and stuff and obviously knew them very well from seeing them every day at work and then uh, he wrote their parts for them as a gift which was uh, which was fabulous because you know they are good actors and they're filmmakers in the room right now, but they so they got to be in the show that they had grown up with, and that was lovely for them. You know, they're suddenly now acting with Dylan and Tyler in, in scenes and so forth, and I'm directing, and it's it was one of the very special magical moments that I've had in my life to be able to work with my children on a on the show that I love, everybody that I loved there. You know, it was really special. You don't get that very often. We would love to talk to them later if they're interested when we get to season four. I said to them today, I said, the only thing I, because they were like, oh, what are you going to talk about on this? And I was like, I'm really nervous about doing this because I 
like I said earlier, if it was if Jeff wrote my script, I could. Uh, <laughs> so I said, the only thing I know for a fact that I'm going to say is that I am going to volunteer you two to go on and do a podcast. <laughs> Wonderful. And, yes, we'd love to talk to them at some point. That'd be fantastic because yeah. they will be far, far more interesting to me because they 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 were kids and they remember it all far more clearly than I do. I'm like, really? That happened? And they're like, yes, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I'd really love to hear their perspective, like growing up on set yeah, and then becoming part of the show. Yeah. It's a really fun. cool story. Do you have any new or upcoming projects that you'd like to talk about? I'm still finishing uh, the last thing I was on, actually, which is uh, NCIS New Orleans. So I'm actually editing that as we speak. Um, so that will be done soon. And as always in the film industry, the, the future is a complete mystery. I do not know. The only thing I know for certain is that uh, my daughters are making, they're making a horror movie. and. I'm hoping oh. they will employ me. So that's awesome. <laughs> I'm very excited. Put in a good word for me when you do interview them. Okay. Oh yeah, I think course. we can do that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like we said, we love horror movies, so very excited for that. Yeah, and we we also try to like. Calissa has a a Twitter account that spotlights female filmmakers. So yeah, we we also try to go out of our way to see horror movies made by women, and. I, I think the genre really benefits from a female perspective. So, well, great. Well, they will be yeah. fascinated to talk to you about that because they have they they have made one movie already that uh, is just coming out actually on um, Apple and YouTube oh. and other places, and it's called it's called Max and Me, and it's not a horror, sure. not a horror thing. It's uh, like a coming of age. It's, it's a coming of age. It's like Teen Wolf without the werewolves. So just the teen then. Just the yeah. teen. Yeah. <laughs> it's teen. So. <laughs> Too. Yes, yes, we absolutely will. Well, Tim, this has been an amazing opportunity yes. to talk to you. And we are very, very grateful that you came on and, and shared some some memories of working on the show that we all love very much. It's It's been an absolute pleasure. I think this is uh, it's going to be fun for the fans of the show and Team Wolf deserves to be celebrated. So thank you. Uh, I love the show and I was uh, hugely grateful to be part of it. A little part of it. Uh, I, I think a little bit bigger part. A little bit bigger part. Yeah, you're a pretty big part. So 35 episodes. I mean, that's, yes. that's yes. pretty, pretty good. I mean, a third of the show. So fantastic. I think that was a good point about Deaton, though, that Scott doesn't bring up when he's trying to repudiate Styles' theory. He he doesn't say, well, Derek said that if he was the alpha, that he would have healed while he was unconscious, but he didn't. That is kind of like a moment where pointing that out kind of shows the seams just a little bit. It very much reminds me of the scene in at the end of the season in, is it co-captain? When Kate is asking Chris, you know, like, can you get turned from a scratch? Well, it depends on how far the claws go. It's like, what about those claw marks? And it's like, guys, those are clearly several days old. They they should be healed. Like you shouldn't even be having this conversation. Right. Period. <laughs> yeah, it, it is kind of like, haven't you guys been hunting them for like 200 years? Yeah. You, y'all don't take very good notes, huh? <laughs> I feel like it's just a problem that all Supernatural shows have going on, especially the show Supernatural. I mean, we got like three seasons in and they'd still be like, oh, that's what happens with demons. Mm-hmm. They've been doing that since... What, Sam was a baby? How did they not already know about that? It it is a problem where I think when you establish characters that are supposed to have expertise on something, it really kind of 
restricts what you're able to do without breaking the continuity. Because eventually, if you want to add mythology, you have to acknowledge that your supposedly expert characters, for some reason never picked up on this basic knowledge that you've just invented, right? Yeah, it is kind of the thing where it's like, because, you know, as a show or any story moves forward with like multiple installments, you're going to come up with new information and you have new ideas that contradict what came before. Because it's like, well, you didn't know at the time we were going to be Dread Doctor. You know, that what that didn't exist in season one, you know, so that type of thing. I feel like you can have a character who has expertise in something, but they're bad at it. You know, Uh someone has a lot of knowledge, but they're not great maybe at the execution of using that knowledge or they're still learning and stuff like that. And I feel like some storytellers are worried that that might make a character seem stupid, for lack of a better word. And I think that ends up putting storytellers in a situation where you get something like that, where it's like, well, they just got this tattoo thing and shouldn't that have existed their entire, you know, this, they, they should know all this over their entire life. So they, I feel like maybe sometimes people lean more into just not good writing instead of having a character learning or being wrong. I think the, the best thing that you can do is when you're writing the characters, you create backdoors in the code almost where, Mm -hmm. so let's say for Supernatural, it would be like, we have a lot of expertise with Supernatural stuff, Mm -hmm. but demons are the hardest things to study because they're rare. They don't, they don't come out and meddle with things very often. So usually we're dealing with ghosts or Wendigos or whatever, but we're not really dealing with demons very often. And there you go. So then you've written something where if you want to add to that particular mythology later, Mm -hmm. you don't have to break the continuity or make it seem like the characters just aren't intelligent for not coming up with this because you've already established this is the one area where we've kind of written ourselves a sandbox. Yes. Because it it seemed like Derek knew a lot more about born wolves than bitten wolves, right? Right. And I feel like it, it should have been like the Argents are talking about there's been kind of an unsteady truce between mm-hmm. werewolves and hunters for a little while mm-hmm. that it's been, you know, the the understanding is like, we won't massacre werewolves and you won't be turning any more humans. So you can keep making more baby wolves, but you're not turning people. Yeah. And that the alpha doing this is kind of breaking this agreement. The, the rules, yeah. and, and because of that, kind of people on both sides, the werewolves and the hunters, aren't as familiar with, with bitten wolves because they just haven't dealt with them in so long. So yeah. you have this long sort of family ancestry of lycanthropy, but they don't, they're not turning people like ever, you know? That's and cool. so then you kind of yeah. create this little pocket sandbox of like, if we want to add some like new interesting stuff to the werewolf mythos where it would conflict with the way characters make decisions or made decisions earlier on, we'll just say, well, this only works for bitten wolves. So they don't know about it because there haven't been really many bitten wolves in the last 50 years or whatever yeah. because of this agreement, right? Yeah, yeah. so I, I think I think that is something that writers should consider doing is, is creating backdoors in the code of their characters, yeah. right? So that they can expand the mythos without making it feel like, well, that character is an idiot then. How do they not know that? They've right. been studying these things for 200 years and they don't know the answer? Like, that's a basic ass question. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It is. <laughs> right? So. Like, surely you guys have been scratched by werewolves before. You guys being hunters collectively. Right. Yes. 
he was always just the one out doing the murdering and she was always like in fight fight stuff I just imagine like there being an argent school basically they yeah school them and like you know they have werewolf classes but then they also just have like fighting classes and she was mm-hmm. just always doing that stuff and learning how like maybe wolfsbane chemistry would be like the most <laughs> yeah. that she'd be interested in so she can just come up with really up shit yeah but she wouldn't be actually learning like the rules yeah she's like 14 she's like so how much voltage can you use on a werewolf before they die i'm asking for a friend it's not my cattle prod i'm just holding it for a friend (laughs) (laughs) i swear i do love this bit though where because a little bit later when jackson and lydia and allison show up allison's gone inside and Lydia and Jackson are waiting for her to come back out. And Jackson notices the car, the hood of the Jeep is all torn and dented open and all this. And I just wish that after this episode, they had fixed it. And then for the rest of the series, there'd just been like a weld scar along the hood of the, the Jeep to show where this battle damage had happened and they just fixed it. Yeah, that would I would have really liked that. Yeah, that yeah. would be great. But it would have been a nice little, nice little, nice little touch. Going back to Jackson, I do think he's just developing feelings for her as a friend. Mm-hmm. But as the episodes proceed, we do see that he's still willing to use her mm-hmm. if right. he has to, to get what he wants. Like he cares about her as a friend, but you know, he says horrible things, horrible, degrading things just to taunt Scott. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a little, we see a little bit of that in Lydia too, that I think she sincerely likes Allison and cares about Allison. But if she thinks that seducing the person that Allison is in love with serves her interests, she will do that. And that is where both of those characters are at the start of their respective arcs. I love how they grow though. Fantastic. So good. Even if Jackson's end ends up happening mostly off screen. I think I know why Peter always goes after Scott. And I think it's because Scott's the first person Peter ever turned. And I feel like there's like maybe a strong connection there. He can't have failed the first time. That he can't turn someone and then it be a complete bust. I have to wonder while they're running around the school from the Alpha, what happened to Derek's blood? Is it still like all over the parking lot? Do you think the nurse was going around cleaning it up after Peter as Peter's running around doing all his alpha stuff? I mean, that that is a good question because when we get to the end of the episode and they get out to the parking lot, we don't see a shitload of blood, which I assume there would be. That was a deep wound. And to Styles's point, blood was just spurting out of his mouth. There had to have been a bunch of blood and it doesn't seem to be there. Or if it's just the angle and there is a huge pool of blood then I guess the the question becomes, did they not try to figure out whose blood it was? I feel like Sheriff would have. But see, that's... Okay, but the sheriff does not do his own, I assume, forensic pathology, and he seems to be the only competent municipal employee (laughs) in the vicinity of Beacon Hills. So until he learns forensic pathology, there's going to be no one around who has the requisite skills to run a blood test. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess all the blood has been cleaned up because the janitor's gone too, right? You know, like they we, we do know that for sure. You know, it, so I, mean, I don't like, think they address one way or the other whether there's blood where Derek was. It seems like Selinsky is not wholly into, or not buying completely. Cause I mean, we even have, you know, cause Styles says, no, you feel like sorry for me. 
Scott says that. Or Scott says that. But I feel like he wouldn't say that if Stalinsky was like, yeah, there's no body, but so much blood. Like, I believe you, so much blood. But we didn't find a body. Because instead he's like, look, Scott, he said there was a body. There's no body. He's like, I I don't know how, because his tone is very much, if there's no body, there's no crime. But it's like, but there was so much blood, you know? So I assume that the nurse had it, was just going behind them with a mop. The whole time cleaning it up because I mean, like, yeah, there's, I mean, Derek would have bled all over the place, especially as he crawled away because he's alive. You know, he crawled away at some point, there'd be just like blood everywhere. And then all the janitor's blood is gone, you know? So, and I'm assuming since Stolinsky isn't believing any of it, the nurse also put that door back into the frame and, uh, you know, and all this stuff. So, fix the holes in the ceiling. Exactly. This is a little bit of a, I guess, a buy on the part of the show that I'm not super into because I feel like there should be an orgy of evidence. Orgy of corro- evidence. That, I love that. That corroborates their Coming story. to CBS this summer. <laughs> orgy of evidence. From Brian Fuller. Orgy of evidence. Sheriff should be going to night school to study forensic pathology. Hey. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> well done. You know, spoiler alert, Derek's not dead, guys. Come on. You're not gonna you're not gonna kill that jawline so easily. That's but, correct. Uh, so you just imagine Derek just crawling with his last, you know, like his, his life's blood is flowing out of him, crawling underneath the window. And he's hearing Scott throw him under the bus to all his friends. And he's like, mother f***er. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he's like trying to replenish all this blood he's lost and he takes it out and be like, oh, God damn it, Scott. So when the alpha roars and forces the shift on Scott, Scott's eyes do turn yellow, but right before they turn yellow, they turn red. And I had actually never noticed this until our rewatch when y'all pointed it out to me. And I wonder if this is some kind of inkling that maybe Jeff had way back in season one of Scott's future alpha status. Because Scott does become an alpha later in, in season, season four. four. I did write for this show. I know what I'm talking yes. about. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes. No, when Scott uh, becomes an alpha in season four, but he doesn't kill another alpha. He just becomes an alpha through sheer force of will when he's trying to save Deaton's life. And that's really awesome. And I wonder if Jeff had an idea for something like that at this point. Cause I mean, clearly that's deliberate. That was, that was a deliberate choice to throw a little right. bit of Reddit there. You know, that wasn't an accident. So mm-hmm. I'm very curious what y'all think about this. I think it's possible. It might also just be brought on because the alpha, you know, it's the one that forces him to shift. And I feel like it's a little bit of maybe the alpha power transferring to him so maybe it's just like the alpha power like surging through him in that moment mm-hmm. i i kind of wondered that if it was more like because the alpha made him shift and was kind of influencing him that was sort of a visual representation of that that scott was under the influence right that is cool that is very cool and that concludes this week's episode of return to beacon hills We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast, as well as on Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. And don't forget to find us at patreon.com forward slash RTBH Podcast for more awesome exclusives. Join us here next week for our look at season one, episode eight, Lunatic. Rate and review us on iTunes. Five-star reviews get a shout-out. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.